Welcome back to The Re-Education. What you're about to hear is the master edit of Church and Deep State, part one and two. The reason that we are putting these two monologues together is because I really believe that they're kind of telling one whole story about that moment nearly 50 years ago when the church committee and the, I should say, Otis Pike committee, because we get into that in part two, exposed many of the darkest secrets of the American deep state and, in my view, spurred a new era of reform, allowing the FBI, the CIA, and other institutions like the NSA to survive. So we will be back this week or next with more great re-education programming. I appreciate the audience's patience on this. And if you haven't listened, here is the full Church and Deep State, part one and two. Today's show is about a moment in time, 1975, when the Senate uncovered government crimes, lawless surveillance, and attempted assassinations, all hidden from the American people in Congress. For nearly 30 years, we will meet a red-pilled senator from Idaho, a pain-in-the-ass reporter from Chicago, and a quiet warrior priest wracked by Catholic guilt. We will see how human folly and institutional hubris led to a season of unprecedented disclosure. It's the story of when America's elected state forced its deep state to come clean. But before we do, I want to define our terms. What is the American deep state? So when I use the phrase, I'm referring to a national security bureaucracy that between 1941 and 1975 operated in near total secrecy with no real oversight or accountability from our elected government. This show endeavors to explain how and why that changed in the year after President Nixon resigned from office in disgrace. Now, I realize this concept, a deep state, is often linked to unprovable conspiracy theories. It is an amorphous hive mind that acts in lockstep. Well, that is a fiction, because the deep state of the early Cold War in America was still fraught with rivalry. There were differences of opinion, rule followers and rule breakers, even a few dissidents. But sometimes it's nice to have an amorphous they. I mean, I get it. A good they can help make sense of great national traumas, like the assassination of John F. Kennedy or 9-11. The real culprit in this case is not Lee Harvey Oswald or Osama bin Laden. They did it. The state within a state that our leaders cannot control and the public is not allowed to see. Well, I hate to disappoint, but this is not a podcast about that kind of deep state. It is nonetheless a cracking tale. So let me make a pitch to all the beautiful minds and dot connectors out there. The real history is scandalous and shocking enough. It will scratch your itch. I know, because I have the same itch to find riddles wrapped inside enigmas. The story of the Church Committee is one of the most underrated dramas of the last half century. First of all, three witnesses to that committee were murdered during the investigation. Two mafiosos and a Chilean diplomat. There are mind control experiments and a lab filled with vials of cobra venom and shellfish toxin. There are break-ins and buggings and a secret station at JFK Airport to open mail from the Soviet bloc. There are wild assassination plots, including a CIA-Mafia joint operation to kill Fidel Castro. That all really happened. 
And we know it happened because in 1975, a Democratic senator from Idaho named Frank Church led an investigation that exposed all of this paranoid duplicity and made it a matter of public record. Here is Frank Church, 48 years ago on Meet the Press, warning that Big Brother would be watching all of us if we do not watch him closely. We have a very extensive capability of intercepting messages wherever they may be in the airwaves. Now that is necessary and important to the United States as we look abroad at enemies or potential enemies. We must know. At the same time, that capability at any time could be turned around on the American people. And no American would have any privacy left, such as the capability to monitor everything, telephone conversations, telegrams, it doesn't matter. So Frank Church made those remarks in the midst of the most consequential reckoning in the history of the U.S. intelligence community. His name will forever be linked to that extraordinary moment when Americans learned what their deep state did in the shadows. My life, my life, my life, my life in the sunshine. Everybody loves the sunshine. Sunshine. Everybody loves the sunshine. How do we get all that sunlight? Well, I would say that the story begins in 1971. Because that's when the New York Times and later the Washington Post published a top-secret history of the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War, known as the Pentagon Papers. Now, we've talked about this on the show before. This study, commissioned by former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara in 1967, was devastating because it exposed repeated lies from both Democratic and Republican administrations about the war in Vietnam. It was not on a glide path to victory. The American effort to prop up the government in Saigon was not bearing fruit. We were not bringing democracy to Vietnam, really. Indeed, the U.S. was deeply involved in the military coup that displaced the repressive DM regime that U.S. policy had propped up in the first place. Now, what makes the Pentagon Papers different is that the damning documents went straight to the press this time. The man who leaked them, Daniel Ellsberg, who died this month at age 92, initially tried to interest Senator William Fulbright, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, in the papers, but Fulbright ended up doing nothing with this explosive information. He locked the file in a vault, and nothing changed. Well, here's Ellsberg in 1971 explaining why he then leaked the secrets directly to the New York Times. I took the responsibility on my own initiative of delivering to the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee of the U.S. Senate OR, the information contained in the so-called Pentagon Papers, including the several studies on negotiations which have not been given to any newspaper. I could only regret that I had not at that same time released that information to the American public through the newspapers. I have now done so. Now, the significance of this, as we will see, is that the Nixon White House enlisted the CIA in its own scheme to expose Ellsberg after this leak. And that's a big deal. It was the first big reveal of what some have called the season of inquiry. These Pentagon Papers, a period between 1971 and 1975, when you could say that Congress and the press stopped being polite and started getting real with the Pentagon and the intelligence agencies. Apologies to my Gen X era MTV watching listeners. 
In the early 1970s, the American system of state secrecy was entirely upended. I mean, there was obviously Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, but there were also peace activists, college professors, progressives who called themselves the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI. And these were the anonymous burglars who broke into a satellite FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, and stole the first files that exposed the FBI's domestic spying on the anti-war movement, the Black Panthers, and even Martin Luther King. There was CIA officer Philip Agee, who left America and treasonously published a book and founded a magazine dedicated to blowing the actual cover of his former CIA colleagues overseas. And there was, of course, the Watergate scandal, which brought down President Richard Nixon. Today, the Watergate narrative is about a president that bent the spy agencies against his political opponents. The deep state, in a sense, is the hero of that drama. The deputy FBI director, Mark Felt, a deep state figure if ever there was one, well, he was, no pun intended, deep throat, the secret source for Woodward and Bernstein's exposés that ultimately forced Nixon to resign. The CIA eventually also told Nixon no, but before they said no to Nixon, they said yes. That brings things back to Mr. Ellsberg and the unit of former spies and G-men working on behalf of Nixon's White House, known as the Plumbers. These are the guys who would eventually stage the Watergate break-in. But the unit got its start with an attempted burglary in 1971, after that big Pentagon Papers leak, of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist office in California. The CIA provided the plumbers with disguises and special equipment to alter their voices, as well as a psychological profile of Ellsberg. Now, at the time, no one was the wiser. A couple years later, though, the Senate Watergate Committee would find out all about it. How often does the CIA help out former employees in the <clears throat> loan of equipment, as in the case of Mr. Hunt? Well, I can only say, Senator Gurney, that this was an extraordinary exception. And it was done because we had been asked to do it by the White House. Has it ever been done before, to your knowledge? Not to my knowledge. So that was former CIA Director Dick Helms, by then ambassador to Iran. And he was in the hot seat before the Senate Watergate Committee. The senators wanted to know how and why the CIA under Dick Helms would assist the White House with an operation to spy on an American citizen this case, Daniel Ellsberg. It was a new experience for the CIA. For nearly 30 years since its creation, as I said earlier, the agency had never really received any kind of serious scrutiny that it was clearly going to have to endure during these Watergate hearings. After all, this was the biggest story in the world. The whole country was hooked. Believe it or not, there were scalpers selling tickets just to sit in a Senate gallery and watch the hearings in person. Celebrities attended. John and Yoko attended a couple of these, and the networks ran wire-to-wire -wire coverage during the day. So soap opera fans did not get a chance to watch their stories when Watergate was on the air. Now, all of this put the CIA in a real pickle. If Americans came to believe that the agency was willing to help a Republican president spy on Democrats, it would lose its legitimacy in a heartbeat. On the other hand, no CIA director can survive without the president's trust. And to illustrate this, just consider... Helms's relationship with Nixon's predecessor, Lyndon Baines Johnson. After the CIA correctly predicts that Israel would launch and win what's known as the Six-Day War, 
Johnson invited Helms to attend a weekly Tuesday lunch with his administration's top national security leaders. And from then on, Helms was in like Flint. And those were the days for Richard Helms. He was probably never going to get a fair shake with Richard Nixon, though, because Nixon held a grudge. He held a grudge against the CIA that went back to the 1960 election. Now, I got into this story in more detail in part two of Bobby Kennedy and his enemies. I recommend it. It's one of our best. But to sum up, Nixon really believed the CIA must have briefed Senator Kennedy during the election on the operation that eventually became the Bay of Pigs. That was when Cuban exiles living in America combined forces with the CIA and tried a kind of amphibious land invasion of Cuba only to be gunned down by Castro's forces who clearly knew they were coming. Now, Nixon knew about the planning for this operation. He was the vice president at the time, but he couldn't say anything about it because the whole scheme was a state secret. So Kennedy attacked his administration for being soft on Cuba and then recommended something that sounded awfully similar to what ended up becoming the Bay of Pigs, and Nixon just had to take it in those debates. So by the time Nixon comes into the White House in 1969, he was determined to ride herd on what he would call those clowns at Langley. Nixon wanted to bring the agency under control of the National Security Council and specifically basically put Henry Kissinger in charge of approving covert action by creating this intergovernment committee that would approve it, even that Henry Kissinger would effectively control and manipulate. He also wanted to slash the CIA's budget. Now, at first, Richard Helms is a very astute political operator. He wanted to appease the White House. And that's probably why the CIA assisted the plumbers in the Ellsberg op. But Watergate, well, that was a bridge too far. The problem for Helms, though, was that even though the CIA formally didn't want to have anything to do with that break-in of the Democratic headquarters, most of the plumbers were retired CIA officers. So here's Helm again at that Senate Watergate committee hearing, trying to explain how the agency didn't have anything to do with Watergate. McCord was a former CIA agent. Hunt was a former CIA agent. Uh, Martinez was on retainer at the time of the break-in. Now, that, that's what I'm trying to get at. Breaking and entering and not getting caught is a very difficult activity. And for it to be done properly, one has to have trained individuals who do nothing else and who are used to doing this frequently and are trained right up to the minute in how to do it. Was McCord in that category? Obviously not. Well, obviously there. So Helms's argument here that the CIA was not in on the Watergate break-in was true to a point. The agency wasn't in on the break-in, but Nixon did his best to recruit the CIA into the cover-up. And at first, and we're talking the first initial days after it, you know, Helms kind of went along with it. He stalled the FBI investigation into the break-in. But he was only willing to go so far. The president wanted the CIA to take the fall entirely for the, for the ordeal and to pay off the Watergate burglars in exchange for their silence. And Helms said no. So Tricky Dick decided it was time to play some hardball. And here is one of the smoking gun Nixon tapes from Watergate. It's June 23rd, 1972. That's six days after the plumbers were arrested. Dick Nixon instructs his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, to bring in Director Helms and remind him that the White House has, quote, protected Helms from one hell of a lot of things. And in that, what he was really getting at was the Bay of Pigs, which was a huge CIA blunder. But he could have had Helms on any number of other things, in the same way that Helms could have had Nixon on any number of things. For example, Helms lied to Congress about the CIA's role in kind of political warfare and eventually a military coup against Salvador Allende 
the socialist president of Chile. We should say that Allende ended up killing himself in that military coup with a pistol that was given to him by Fidel Castro as his government fell to a general named Augusto Pinochet, who was in contact with the agency. Here is Tricky Dick on tape. Well, we prepared to help on a hell of a lot of things. That's what everything starts. This is a uh, hunt. That'll uncover a lot of us. That's a hell of a lot of things. We just feel that this is very detrimental to have this thing going further. This involves the Cubans and a lot of hanky-panky that we have nothing to do with ourselves. Well, Haldeman did have that meeting, and Helms shot back. And here I'm, I'm quoting this from Richard Helms' memoir. The Bay of Pigs hasn't got a damn thing to do with this, apparently, is what Helms said. In 1988, several years after all of this, Helms told an interviewer that the CIA could have done as Nixon wished, but didn't. Quote, we could get the money. We didn't need to launder money, ever. But the end result would have been the end of the agency. Not only would I have gone to jail if I had gone along with what the White House wanted us to do, but the agency's credibility would have been ruined forever. End quote. Dick Nixon not pleased. So after he wins re-election in a landslide, I might add, in 1972, he fired Richard Helms and made him ambassador to Iran. It is what it is what Don Rumsfeld, who was also in the next administration, would call a fuck-off assignment. Nixon would nominate a technocrat, a guy by the name of James Schlesinger, to replace Richard Helms at the CIA. After he is confirmed, Schlesinger arrives at Langley on February 2nd, 1973. And we should say that by all accounts, James Schlesinger is a brilliant man. He earned a PhD in economics from Harvard University in 1956. He was the director of strategic studies at the Rand Corporation, and he chaired Nixon's Atomic Energy Commission and was an important player in determining national security budgets and his roles at the Office of Management and Budget. All of this before being sent to the CIA, and he's a young man in his early 40s at this point to boot. Anyway, Schlesinger, consummate insider. The guy would serve as both Secretary of Defense and Secretary of Energy later on in the 1970s. Now, Jim Schlesinger believed that his job was to cut the fat at the CIA, reorganize the intelligence community, so that it was all under one director and accountable directly to the president. And he thought he was selected to this job because of his deep knowledge of government and national security budgets. Nixon, however, just wanted a loyalist to protect the White House from blowback on Watergate, which was becoming a huge scandal. So Schlesinger, I should say, for all of his brilliance, and this guy is off the charts smart, didn't have this street sense, what the Yiddish would call the sechel, to know he was chosen because his predecessor wouldn't do the president's bidding. Now, it's not an enviable position for anyone in this job in 1973, because by the time that Schlesinger is at the you know headquarters desk at Langley, the Senate Watergate Committee really is in full bloom. It has got its sights set on the CIA. It's a factor that's often forgotten in the history of Watergate. So just to give a flavor of what Schlesinger is dealing with in this moment, I'm going to play a snippet of testimony from E. Howard Hunt. Now, he ended up being sort of the director of the plumbers. 
but he was a retired CIA officer, a fascinating guy, by the way. Hunt is a longtime friend of William F. Buckley, who was briefly in the CIA, and he ended up becoming like a spy novelist, too. So here he is in this hearing. He's wearing sunglasses indoors, and Hunt acknowledges in open testimony here that the CIA had been conducting domestic intelligence operations for some time. Take a listen. CIA is by statute precluded from involvement in domestic affairs and even in uh, uh, non-domestic activity within the confines of the United States, according to one reading of the statute. Can you honestly say that in view of all the things I've described to you that the CIA was not involved in domestic activities? No, sir, nor can I say that the uh, CIA has ever stayed out of domestic activities. Well, that's a PR poop storm. Between moments like that and the news that the CIA had aided the White House operations against Ellsberg, Schlesinger was furious. And I think anybody would be furious. He takes this job and it seems like every other day he learns another bombshell about something that happened to the CIA that was illegal or part of this Watergate scandal that he himself had nothing to do with, but the agency that he was leading seemed to be involved with. So at this point, Schlesinger decides, you know what? I want to know everything. No more surprises. So on May 9th, 1973, CIA Director James Schlesinger makes the following historic order. It is an order that changed the course of American history. So I want to quote it here. Quote, All senior operating officials of this agency to report to me immediately on any activities now going on or that have gone on in the past which might be construed to be outside the legislative charter of this agency. I hereby direct every person presently employed by the CIA to report to me on any such activities of which he has knowledge. I invite all ex-employees to do the same. Anyone who has such information should call and say that he wishes to tell me about, quote, activities outside CIA's charter, end quote. Okay, so sometimes in life, the most brilliant people do something that is moronic. And, you know, think of like Mark Zuckerberg turning Facebook into a VR company called Meta. This is one of those times. I mean, the CIA routinely breaks the law of countries where its operatives conduct espionage, sabotage, and all manner of skullduggery. Asking such an agency to put in writing its past crimes is like asking your neighborhood drug dealer for a receipt for that eight ball you just purchased for the weekend. I am reminded of this memorable scene from The Wire in season two. Rival drug dealers in Baltimore establish a kind of cocaine-heroin cooperative, and they run their meetings according to Robert's rules of order. I will let Stringer Bell take it from here. Motherfucker, what is it? The Robert rules say we gotta have minutes for a meeting, right? He's the minutes. Is you taking notes on a criminal fucking conspiracy? What the fuck is you thinking, man? So Schlesinger had the good fortune to get another promotion as Nixon's government unraveled. And I mean, this was a very good fortune because you got to understand, two months after he issues that memo, Nixon makes him secretary of defense. The man who replaces Schlesinger was a CIA lifer by the name of William Colby. Okay, so on the surface, William Colby, well, he looks like a lawyer spy. He trained to be a lawyer. I mean, consummate prep horn rim glasses, slick back hair, parted on the side, Brooks Brothers suits. Beneath that surface, though, Colby was a soldier. In World War II, he parachuted behind enemy lines in Norway as a member of the CIA's predecessor organization, the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS. 
and he helped organize a Norwegian insurgency. These are the guys, by the way, if you see these old pictures from World War II, that like they're on skis in the snow and they have like a rifle. And I think probably this kind of stuff might be like a predecessor to the Winter Olympic sport of the biathlon, which involves shooting and cross-country skiing. In the 1950s, Colby's back in his kind of suit and tie. He's operating out of Rome, and he's handing out big bags of cash to the Christian Democrats in Italy and helping to make sure non-communists win elections there. And then during the Vietnam War, starting as early as 1958, Colby becomes advising the CIA and begins working the CIA operation in Vietnam, where the goal of the U.S. policy is effectively to prop up a South Vietnamese government that is going to resist the communists and the communist insurgents known as the Viet Cong. Now, by the 60s, Colby is back and he runs something that's really one kind of an infamous chapter in CIA history known as Operation Phoenix. And that really was a dirty war of assassinations against the Viet Cong, where he was effectively training up a South Vietnamese, call it a death squad. And it's really some of the nastiest, one of the nastiest chapters of U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Okay, so one might think a guy like that would bury, burn, or shred the reports that Schlesinger ordered. Certainly, a guy like Richard Helms would have made sure those memos disappeared. Indeed, it was Helms who had most of the files that documented the agency's LSD experiments, something known as MK Ultra, that he had them burned before he left the agency as for his post in Tehran. But William Colby was not Richard Helms. He did not cover up the memos Schlesinger ordered. He compiled them into a massive internal file, nearly 700 pages, known colloquially at Langley as the Family Jewels. Now, I just want to say something here about the deep state. If the deep state operated, as I said, like a hive mind or always sort of in the same direction, then you couldn't account for somebody like William Colby deciding to actually memorialize the past crimes of the agency when he did have an opportunity to basically put this stuff in a memory hole. So that's an important point to make. Anyway, these family jewels, they were a ticking time bomb. Sooner or later, a journalist would find them and have the scoop of the century. Well, a journalist did get a hold of those jewels. His name was Seymour Hirsch. Understand, I'm just trying to be the daily scoop. Now this is 1974. At this time, Cy Hirsch, he's a tornado. His first great get was breaking the My Lai massacre story in Vietnam, when GIs led by Lieutenant William Cowley lined up women and children in a ditch and opened fire. It was a massacre and a war crime. Anyway, Cy Hirsch gets that story with a combination of what we would call shoe leather and moxie. Hirsch found out that there was a soldier who was charged by military police for killing more than 100 Vietnamese civilians. So he went from army stockite, basically he went to every U.S. military prison he could find, just trying to find the man who was being charged for the massacre. And military police at these bases they were instructed to keep Cowley away from reporters, generally speaking. So Hirsch would occasionally have to run out of administrative buildings, fearing a senior officer would figure out who he was. That's how dedicated Cy Hirsch was to finding William Cowley. Anyway, eventually he found Cowley's lawyer, and then he found the man himself. And in those days, I would say you could not stop Cy Hirsch. You could only hope to contain him. Milai eventually got Cy Hirsch at first a job with the New Yorker and then an offer from the old gray lady herself, the New York Times. And by 1974, we should say that Cy Hirsch enjoys a special relationship with New York Times editor A.M. Rosenthal or Abe Rosenthal. Both the editor and the reporter respected one another for sure. But they also annoyed the hell out of each other. When Hirsch was younger, Rosenthal ignored his entreaties for a job at the Times 
and asked if he could make a source available to his paper for the Me Lai story instead of running the scoop from Cy Hirsch, which was being put out on a smaller kind of news service. It's important to remember here that Cy Hirsch was, and I mean this as the highest praise, a pain in the ass. You could say it was a superpower because Hirsch loved what we call the doorstop. That's when a reporter camps out home as of a senior official. He used to collect military phone books and track the personal addresses for senior officers. Hirsch would call a secretary of defense or a CIA master spy late into the evenings on their home numbers. He just didn't care. When Cy Hirsch was giving Woodward and Bernstein a run for their money on Watergate, and he did break a lot of those stories, especially once he got on the story in 1973, Rosenthal once said that Hirsch was like a puppy who wasn't housebroken. But as long as he was pissing on Ben Bradley's carpet, he didn't care. Ben Bradley was the editor of the Washington Post at the time. So Cy Hirsch, well, he had insiders feeding him on the family jewel story for more than a year before he pulled the trigger. You know, one source was Bob Kiley, who in the 1960s infiltrated anti-war organizations for a guy named Dick Ober at the CIA, sort of running a, an initial version of this anti-domestic spying program. And Kiley's an interesting figure because he had a second career in Boston politics where he rose to become deputy mayor. Hirsch also got a lot of help from a guy named Lucien Nedzi. He was the congressman who was the chairman of a House subcommittee on intelligence. And, you know, Nedzi, fascinating figure in this period because he really played all sides. So here's a guy who would be briefed by Bill Colby on the family jewels, but he was also a source for Hirsch. All the while, Nedzi would tell Colby about what he was hearing Hirsch would be working on. Anyway, eventually Colby himself would confirm this whole thing for Hirsch. So everybody's kind of playing angles on it. They're like, on the one hand, they're having conversations with one another. They're saying, oh my God, how did Hirsch find that out? How did he do this? On the other hand, they're secretly helping him. So I, I love that sort of stuff. According to Tim Wiener's History of the CIA, Legacy of Ashes, Cy Hirsch finally got his interview with Colby at CIA headquarters on December 20th, 1974. So Bill Colby, who secretly taped that conversation with Cy Hirsch, tried his best to talk him out of writing it. He said, I think family skeletons are best left where they are, in the closet. That's Wiener quoting Colby from the transcript of the secret conversation with Hirsch. Well, anyway, Cy Hirsch in a 2011 documentary made by Bill Colby's son, Carl, well, he, this is his version of events with his talk with Colby. He did see me and he didn't lie to me. What he did was if I said there was I, at least 120 cases of wire breaking, a wire wiretapping of American citizens on contrary to the law in, in America, he said my number is only 63. There was a question of numbers. He did not back away from the question of wrongdoing. And so that's one hell of a story. Okay, so after Colby confirms the whole thing, Hirsch heads straight to the Washington Bureau for the New York Times, sits down, starts writing his masterpiece. There was only one problem. The New York copy desk only had enough space for 2,000 words. And Hirsch needed more. A lot more. He appealed to the night editor for more space. They couldn't do it. So Cy Hirsch decided to bring this to the top. The first thing he did was find Rosenthal's home number. It's now 2 a.m. Cy is desperate to get the editor-in-chief on the phone. Abe's wife, Ann Rosenthal, answers the phone after it rings for a while. And now I'm going to quote from Cy Hirsch's 2018 memoir, Reporter. Quote, I apologize for calling. Told her who I was and said, I needed to speak to Abe right away. Well, she said, with much bitterness, you've called the wrong person. Abe's left me. You'll have to call him at his girlfriend's house. I staggered into a soap opera. I mumbled something and hung up. End quote. Okay, so we're talking about Cy Hirsch, one of the most persistent reporters in the history of journalism. He was not going to give up that easy. So he calls back, asks Anne Rosenthal again if she knew the name of the woman her husband 
had left her for. And she let him have it, but eventually came up with a number. Hirsch, at this point, calls the girlfriend's house. It's now closer to 3 a.m. The phone rings and rings and then cuts off. He calls again. Abe's girlfriend finally picks up. Now I'm going to quote again from reporter. Quote, I said very quickly, I don't care what the hell is going on there, but you've got to tell Abe Rosenthal that Cy Hirsch is on the phone and needs to talk to him urgently. There was no response, but she did not hang up. Do it, please, I said. A minute later, Abe got on the telephone. He was very angry and I didn't care. I interrupted his bitching to say that this fucking newspaper had its head up its ass and I had been told there was enough space for the CIA story. How much do you need, he asked. I said at least seven or eight columns, 7,000 or more words. What's your phone number, he asked. I said, what number? Numbskull, he roared. The phone you're using in the office. I gave the number to him and he hung up. A few moments later, Abe called and said, I want you to know that tomorrow's New York Times will have an extra page in every one of its 1.6 million copies. On one side will be a house ad and on the other side, your cockamamie story. End quote. Isn't that great? Anyway, that's why I love history. I should say that Cy Hirsch does run hot and cold. He's had a long career. I like to compare Cy Hirsch to the great New York Yankee and Oakland A slugger Reggie Jackson. A lot of strikeouts, but when he connects, boy, he's making history. So I would just say, if you want a critique of Cy Hirsch's, let's say, war on terror era journalism, I'll read my dear friend Jamie Kirchick's 2014 essay on this topic for Commentary Magazine. But this podcast is really about a time when Cy Hirsch got the goods, and oh, did he have those goods. They were blared across the December 22nd, 1974 Sunday front page of the New York Times. It read, huge CIA operation in U.S. against anti-war forces, other dissidents in Nixon years. It was an earthquake. Well, the guts of that scoop detailed something known as Operation Chaos. Initially, chaos was a CIA program approved by President Lyndon Johnson and later Richard Nixon to determine if the Soviets, Cubans, or Red Chinese were supporting the American anti-war movement and other domestic radicals. There was Project Merrimack, which sent agents to infiltrate U.S. anti-war groups when they traveled abroad. And there was Project Resistance, where CIA officers worked with college administrators, local cops, and campus security to identify radicals. The targets of chaos included... Students for a Democratic Society, which was a new left organization that eventually would splinter in 1968, with one branch becoming the radical terrorist known as the Weather Underground. Other targets included Ramparts Magazine, which is sort of a radical journal that had first exposed the CIA's clandestine funding of cultural organizations in, back in 1966. Other targets were the Black Panthers and a street gang known as the Young Lords. The CIA, for a brief stint, even spied on B'nai B'rith, the Jewish community organization. Okay, so the agency's surveillance and infiltration of these domestic organizations was only one facet of the family jewels. But what a facet it was. There are a few things the CIA's charter prohibits. At the top of that list, spying on American citizens. And yet, here the agency was, running informants, bugging and wiretapping Americans. As Hirsch writes in his 2018 memoir, Reporter, as I learned more about the agency, I'd become convinced that Nixon's responsibility for the Watergate break-in was perhaps merely a footnote to the real criminality of my government. Well, I want to linger on that quote for just a moment because I think it really is important 
and it emphasizes what I've been talking about here, but the two narratives about the deep state. So we just described CIA domestic spying. Okay, the program was in response to direct orders initially from President Johnson and then President Nixon. And on the surface, that would look like kind of a classic example of what we'll call the Watergate narrative. That's when a U.S. president asked the CIA or the FBI or the NSA or some military intelligence agency to violate their charter or violate U.S. law. And, you know, again, you have the sort of, you know, the national security bureaucracy and it is being abused by the elected leader. So that's that's the, the Watergate narrative. But then... Part of the stuff that was uncovered was something known as H.T. Lingual. Well, what is that? That was a program that began in 1952 to secretly open pieces of mail sent to Americans from the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact countries. The CIA would steam open envelopes at a special facility at the JFK airport in New York and later in New Orleans and San Francisco. And initially, the post office agreed to this CIA program, but subsequent postmaster generals were completely unaware of the operation because it was such a state secret. So it started off as a program that you could say at least the Postal Service knew about, and maybe President Eisenhower had some idea about. But over time, not even the Postmaster Generals knew about it, because you got kind of like one-time approval, but it was never reopened again. So that's an example, I would say, of the other deep state narrative, which is that you've got this national security bureaucracy that is doing things without even the knowledge of the leader of the executive branch. Because what we find out is that President Richard Nixon himself did not know about H.T. Lingual. Now, that to me, this is, this is where it gets very interesting. Now, we all know this because of a young Nixon staffer named Tom Charles Houston. A little background on, on Tom Charles Houston. He was one of the villains in the Watergate plan because he was somebody who was trying to get the U.S. intelligence agencies, including the CIA, to basically adopt more aggressive measures to monitor domestic radicals in the United States. And he was trying to push through this to the FBI. We talked a little bit about this in an earlier episode, I think, in OG Man, because what ended up happening was J. Edgar Hoover didn't like it because it was taking power away from the FBI, basically, to do all that kind of domestic intelligence activity. So Hoover didn't like it and kind of had a showdown with Nixon, forcing Nixon to back off because he wanted basically to get Nixon to sort of say in his own words, directly ordering him to participate in it. And Nixon was smart enough to know that he didn't want to leave that paper trail. Anyway, that's probably not a fair, in my view, to Tom Charles Houston. And let me explain why. Okay, because there was a real threat in 1970, first of all, when it came to domestic terrorism. There were more than 1,200 bombings, I think, between 18-month period between 71 and 72. And, you know, you could argue that this was a response to trying to get a handle on what was sort of a wave of domestic terrorism. Now, this now will get back to the point about the two deep state narratives. So Watergate hearings in 74, Houston is the villain because he's pushing the deep state to do something that at least the FBI for the moment didn't want to do. But in the church committee, it becomes much more interesting because what Houston says in his testimony and it's supported is that he recommended something that was almost identical to what is H.T. Lingual, the opening of mail from the Soviet bloc. And in these meetings, the CIA's representatives, they pretended they were not doing that in the first place. So if you can imagine saying, you know, I want I want to make sure that the CIA, you know, is, is opening the mail. They had a program that existed in opening the mail for the last 20 years. And the CIA guys in the meeting saying, OK, take notes. That sounds interesting. Let's go back to you, blah, blah, blah. So here's a young Senator Gary Hart during these church hearings asking Houston why the CIA bothered with this charade. I just want to play this clip. You've indicated that... Uh... 
after the fact, you found out that many of the agencies that were on that interagency task force were using tools that uh, they were sitting there discussing White House approval for obtaining. Uh, why do you think they were they were going through this charade? <laughs> I wish I knew. I don't know. All right. Now let's get back to Cy Hirsch, because the revelation that the CIA had been spying on Americans at home, well, it rocked the nation's capital. It rocked the country. Normally, the week of Christmas is kind of a dead time in Washington, D.C. President Gerald Ford, at this point, was already on vacation with his family at Vail, Colorado. But Ford's young chief of staff, Donald Rumsfeld, name I'm sure everybody remembers from the Bush years, who was with the president on that ski trip, immediately saw trouble with that Cy Hirsch story. The White House was now in damage control mode. Rumsfeld first instructs the CIA director, that's now by this point William Colby, to respond to the allegations in Hearst's story within 48 hours in writing. Colby was to send his memo about the Hearst story to Don Rumsfeld's deputy, a 33-year-old staffer from Wyoming you may have heard of, Dick Cheney. Now, Cheney would, of course, go on to become a congressman, secretary of defense, vice president, oil company executive. But as a young staffer, he understood that Hearst's story could not be ignored. And here I want to read from Jefferson Morley's biography of CIA spymaster James Jesus Angleton, The Ghost, quote, Hearst's reporting was read with appalled interest on Capitol Hill in newsrooms and in living rooms precisely because it documented allegations of surveillance and infiltration that the government had long denied. In this crucible, Dick Cheney grasped that the issue was neither simply one man nor the spying on Americans. At stake was the power of the president to use the CIA as an instrument of national policy as he saw fit, end of quote. So Cheney got to work on a White House strategy for managing the scandal. The plan was for President Ford to take the lead and get out in front of it. This was the only way that, at least Cheney believed, to stave off congressional investigations that a weakened White House could not control. So Cheney turned to a tried-and-true technique for slow-rolling national scandals. The Blue Ribbon Commission. Ford agreed. He appointed his vice president, Nelson Rockefeller, along with many other conservative luminaries, including Ronald Reagan, who would put a scare into Ford during the 1976 Republican convention, to a special commission to study intelligence agency abuses in the wake of Cy Hirsch's big scoop. All right. So remember, the Times at this point only had a few of the family jewels, so to speak. The full story would turn out to be a scandalabra. Colby's full file documented the detention and mistreatment of a Soviet defector for more than two years named Yuri Nosenko. In fact, when I say mistreatment, there's credible evidence you could say the man was tortured. It would detail all kinds of CIA assassination plots from Cuba's Fidel Castro to Patrice Lumumba in the Congo. The agency's experiments with LSD on unwitting subsects was also among the family jewels that risked exposure. And the working assumption now was that more dirty laundry would get out, or even worse, Congress would start asking lots of uncomfortable questions. So Cheney gets Ford to invite old A.M. Rosenthal and a few other New York Times editors and reporters to a White House lunch to tell them all about how the allegations raised by their newspaper would be examined by the Rockefeller Commission in full. So this was on January 16th, 1975. Notably missing from this powwow, Cy Hirsch. Big mistake. So at this point, we should say... Gerald Ford is an accidental president, and, you know, he was not elected in 1972, even as vice president, because back then Spiro Agnew was Nixon's running mate. And Ford, who was a reliable Republican in Congress, had been on the Warren Commission that looked at the JFK assassination. Well, he was chosen to be the vice president after Agnew had to resign in disgrace following his own corruption scandal. In this respect, 
Ford was a contrast from the corrupt administration he replaced. Now, that would be a considerably good thing. But he also had a bad habit of mangling his words and appearing overall an unsteady presence in a very chaotic time. I want to play just a brief clip from the first season of Saturday Night Live that illustrates how Gerald Ford was sort of teased. Because this is the last of these historic debates, we will begin with our national anthem. I can name that tune in four notes. No, no. The Star Spangled Banner. No, Mr. President. No, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. How about I Gotta Be Me? Okay, so that, that was Chevy Chase, by the way. President Ford, only in office a few months, remember Nixon resigns on August 8th, 1974, is now in the middle of a generational reckoning over CIA, NSA, and FBI programs that he was only just learning about himself. And that's very important. It's not like Ford, you know, if, if this was Nixon who would be dealing with this, Nixon, like, you know, knew a lot about this stuff. He had been in the office for a while. Ford had only been in the office for a few months. Okay, so that's the context of that fateful lunch at the White House with the Times editors. The key moment is when Rosenthal asks a fairly obvious question. Why did Ford choose all of these conservatives for the commission to explore intelligence abuses? So Ford answered that he chose people he could trust to keep secret programs that should stay secret, secret. Makes sense so far. And then Rosenthal, being a terrific newsman himself, asks, like what? And Ford lets the cat out of the bag. Like assassinations. So then Ford backs up and says that the last remark that he made about the assassinations, well, that's off the record. It's off the record. And this, of course, presents a dilemma for the Times men. On the one hand, the president of the United States just confirmed that the CIA had plotted to kill foreign leaders. And I can't think of a bigger story than that. On the other hand, Ford put it off the record. Their reputations as journalists required them, you would think, or at least some would argue, to keep that secret. One of the Times journalists in the meeting, a columnist by the name of Tom Wicker, urged the group they had to at least tell Hirsch what they had just learned, because Hirsch was their guy. He was on the story. Rosenthal would, you know, he hemmed and hawed. I think he was conflicted. Wicker takes matters into his own hand and tells Hirsch on his own. And here is Wicker from his own 1978 memoir called On the Press. Quote, it's intolerable that the American government should sponsor such criminal and indefensible acts as political assassinations. And I saw no reason why the New York Times should protect Ford against his own disclosures of such acts. If the people had a right to know anything, surely they had a right to know murder was being done in their name, end quote. So Wicker briefs Hirsch. And now Hirsch has a minor dilemma. He could have pursued that story himself, but he suspected he would run into resistance, maybe not from Rosenthal, but other editors. There would be this whole thing about like how to phrase things because of the off the record thing they agreed to with President Ford. And it would just be a huge hassle. So Cy realizes that he really can't write it for the Times. It is a great job, obviously, writing for the New York Times. So what does he do? Well, he does the same thing that Wicker does. And he leaks it himself. He leaks it to his neighbor, a CBS reporter by the name of Daniel Shore. Game on. President Ford has reportedly warned associates that if current investigations go too far, they could uncover several assassinations of foreign officials in which the CIA was involved. Now, one can imagine a young Dick Cheney banging his head against the wall. The Rockefeller Commission was supposed to be, in the parlance of the Watergate era, a limited hangout. The report would cop to some of the bad stuff in the family jewels. Not all of it, though, and especially not assassinations. Now, I, I want to just point something out here. Why are assassinations so incredibly sensitive in this moment? I mean, there's the obvious answer, which is that it's a huge embarrassment. It's a violation of international law and all of that. 
But there's a very personal answer right now that's very unique to this moment in time in American history, and that is we're coming out of the 1960s. President John F. Kennedy is assassinated. His brother Robert Kennedy is assassinated. Martin Luther King is assassinated. There were assassination attempts against Gerald Ford. If it gets out that the U.S. government is also trying to kill foreign leaders, well, one could argue that it invites a similar kind of retaliation. And that is one of the reasons why it is so incredibly sensitive. Now, I should say, the Rockefeller Commission did end up confirming most of this Operation Chaos scoop from Cy Hirsch. It also discusses other embarrassing episodes, such as the CIA's bizarre quest to create a mind-controlled drug, which we talked about briefly earlier, called MKUltra. The final report, however, did not include a chapter on CIA assassination plots, even though this was in the file known as the Family Jewels that Colby had compiled way back in 1974. Now, that does not mean that the commission, though, did not write such a chapter. And this is a fascinating part of the story here. Again, illustrating that the idea of a deep state operating in lockstep is just not true. And that it, these are institutions, even if they're secret institutions, with lots of people in them. So just like you have Colby, who would take a different approach than Helms, you also have this guy, David Balin, who is the executive director of the Rockefeller Commission, who takes a very different approach than Dick Cheney. And he fought like hell to include the assassinations in the final report. Now, he ended up losing, but he ended up also writing that chapter. And he, in the process of his own research, learns the CIA has its own secret inspector general, again, disproving the sort of hive mind thesis, that conducted a study of assassination plots and concluded they were not effective. Okay, so at one point, you know, Balin threatens to go public. There's a great chapter, by the way, that gets into this in the Risen's book that I recommend everybody should go out and buy. And anyway, but Cheney had the final cut. He had the final edits and he wins that battle, but he was about to lose the war. Do you remember your President Nixon? Do you remember the bills you have to pay for even yesterday? That was part one of Church and Deep State. And with that, enjoy Church and Deep State, part two. Welcome back. In the last episode, we discussed how CIA Director James Schlesinger ordered the agency's personnel, past and present, to put in writing the times when they violated the CIA's charter. Those reports were compiled in a nearly 700-page compendium known as the Family Jewels. When Seymour Hersh, then working for the New York Times, published a story based on part of that report, all hell broke loose. A young Dick Cheney then decided that the president, in this case President Ford, had to appoint a panel to study the abuses of the intelligence community to stave off Congress, get ahead of the story, but only to find out that his blue ribbon commission, his limited hangout, was ruined by a Kinsley gaffe. That is when a politician accidentally tells the truth. And President Gerald Ford, in a lunch with New York Times editors, accidentally told the truth when he blurted out that the CIA had tried to kill foreign leaders in the past. 
after CBS News reported that President Ford was worried those particular beans would spill, Senator Frank Church would make sure that they would. We regard the assassination plots as aberrations. The United States must not adopt the tactics of the enemy. Means are as important as ends. Crisis makes it tempting to ignore the wise restraints that make men free. But each time we do so, each time the means we use are wrong, our inner strength, the strength which makes us free, is lessened. So that was Senator Frank Church on November 20th, 1975, at a press conference. I love that line. Crisis makes it tempting to ignore the wise restraints that make men free. I think it captures an underlying theme of this show, because institutions like the CIA and the FBI during the Cold War were in a perpetual crisis, an eternal struggle against an evil empire. In such a situation, one can justify just about anything. Spying on Americans, plotting assassinations, black propaganda, even cruel human experiments to discover a mind control drug. So I want to read now from a 1954 top secret memo from Lieutenant General James Doolittle to President Dwight D. Eisenhower assessing the CIA's covert action capabilities. It sums up how this temptation of crisis can obliterate those wise restraints that Senator Church was worried about. And I should say this was declassified in 2002. Quote, it is now clear that we are facing an implacable enemy whose avowed objective is world domination by whatever means and whatever cost. There are no rules to such a game. Hitherto acceptable norms of human conduct do not apply. If the United States is to survive, long-standing American concepts of fair play must be reconsidered, end quote. So the problem for the American deep state was that the new rules were never really debated by Congress or shared with the American people. The U.S. government was waging a largely secret war against the Soviet Union in this period. And I should say, yes, there were open conflicts like Korea and Vietnam and that could not be shrouded for the public. There was, of course, the Cuban Missile Crisis. There was a lot of, you know, debates and propaganda and so forth. But the CIA's mission and much of what the FBI did to protect America from international communism, especially in the first three decades of the Cold War, well, it was a black box. Presidents lied. Congress was incurious. And until the late 1960s, the press was asleep at the switch. As we discussed in episode one, things began to change during Watergate. The mood of the country was very different than it was when General Doolittle counseled President Eisenhower to reconsider long-standing American concepts of fair play. The result was an unprecedented showdown between Congress and the deep state. As Church's committee was finishing its chapter on CIA assassination plots at the end of 1975, President Ford wrote personal letters to every senator on that panel urging them not to release this report to the public. CIA director at the time, William Colby, held a press conference warning that the assassinations report included the names of officers and they would be in grave danger if it saw the light of day. It was the right to know versus the need to know. And the Ford administration believed the American people did not have a right to know the times the CIA planned murder missions abroad. So the question I want to start this episode with is why? It's not as obvious as you might think. After all, most of these plots never succeeded. 
To demonstrate, let's look at Congolese leader Patrice Lumumba. It's true. President Eisenhower had made it known to Alan Dulles, a CIA director, that he would like to be rid of this meddlesome leader, so to speak. The CIA believed it had marching orders to kill him. So a CIA chemist named Sidney Gottlieb brought a poison kit to what is today Brazzaville. He handed it over to a reluctant CIA officer, but the officer never got a chance to use it because another armed faction caught up with Lumumba before he could. Now, some of the plots did succeed. The CIA was intimately involved with the murder of Rene Schneider in 1970. He was the top general in Chile who opposed a military coup against the socialist president, Salvador Allende, who himself would be toppled three years later. Now, Chilean operatives smashed his limousine's window with a sledgehammer and shot him several times on his way to work. The Risens, in their great book, The Last Honest Man, dig up this nugget from the lawyer Terry Lenzer's memoir, where he writes that his client, the aforementioned Sidney Gottlieb, acknowledged privately to him that he sent a scarf infected with tuberculosis to an Iraqi colonel who subsequently succumbed to the disease. The church committee never nailed that detail down. Now, the real sensitivity, though, with assassination plots involved Cuban strongman Fidel Castro. Church was attuned to this anxiety, so he agreed to hold his hearings about assassination in closed sessions. No reporters. But it didn't matter. The press still covered every nook and cranny of this drama. Camera shy and heavily guarded, as might be expected after Sam Giancana's death, Roselli slipped up and down back stairs at the Capitol trying to avoid the press. But before the Senate committee waiving immunity, Roselli was fully cooperative. For two and a half hours, he told of plotting with the CIA starting in 1960 to try to kill Castro. By poison, by rifle, trying to land hit teams by power boat. One of the boats sunk by a Cuban patrol vessel. So that was Daniel Shore. Again, by the way, Daniel Shore on a real hot streak in 1975 and 1976, you could say. He's reporting on one of those closed hearings that were supposed to remain secret. Spoiler alert, none of them remain secret. The star witness was wise guy and made man Johnny Roselli. So this was the last time the committee would hear from handsome Johnny. He would be murdered in the summer of 1976 before he could testify to the church committee in public. His decomposing body was found by a fisherman off the coast of Miami in a 55-pound steel drum on August 7, 1976, 10 days after he went missing. Roselli I should say, wasn't the only witness before the church committed to sleep with the fishes. Sam Giancana of the Chicago Syndicate and JFK Love Triangle. Listen to Bobby Kennedy and his enemies, part one and two, for more on that. Well, he was shot dead in his kitchen while grilling sausages and drinking a tab. Good evening. Sam Momo Giancana, the Chicago Crime Syndicate chieftain, recently named in a reported CIA mafia plot to assassinate Fidel Castro, has been shot to death. Federal, state, and local law enforcement authorities say the killing late last night at the 65-year-old Giancana's suburban Oak Park home looks like an underworld execution. So you can see why the Senate investigation into CIA assassinations was like catnip for the post-Watergate Washington press corps. I mean, we covered the base of these plots in the Bobby Kennedy episodes, but I want to get into a little bit more detail here. So it starts with a former FBI agent named Robert Mayhew who had been on the agency's payroll since 1954. He had received $500 a month as a stipend, and in exchange, he would take on very sensitive missions for the CIA in his new capacity as a combination PR man and private investigator. 
he would be known as a contract agent. It's not somebody who was formerly a CIA officer, but he would be used for really sensitive tasks. The Risens in their book, by the way, they describe this great harebrained scheme where Mayhew produced, I guess you could say, a primitive or early version of a deep fake with actors in Hollywood that made it appear that Indonesia's president was having an affair with a Soviet woman. This was like a kind of a phony film. Bing Crosby, by the way, and his brother Larry were attached to the project, if you can believe it. CIA did not end up releasing this film, but they did end up releasing stills of the film to the Indonesian and international press. Nothing much came of it. Mayhew eventually would become a security chief and consigliere of sorts to the deranged billionaire Howard Hughes, who was himself a kind of CIA asset. It was Hughes who donated the deep-sea excavation ship known as the Glomar Explorer for a top-secret CIA mission to retrieve a Soviet eavesdropping vessel from the ocean's floor. But back in 1960, Mayhew was in business for himself as a private snoop and PR man. Mayhew knew the underworld well. So when the CIA approached him to see if he might know some wise guys who would be interested in Cuban regime change, Mayhew went to Roselli, who in turn reached out to Giancana and Tampa-based boss Santo Traficante. At a suite at Miami's sumptuous Fontainebleau Hotel, they hatched a scheme to poison Fidel Castro as they cooked steaks and chased skirts. Here is Mayhew at a press conference following his testimony before the church committee. My only understanding was that uh, the, uh, the capsules were to be given to um, someone, and uh, the someone I, I, I didn't know then and never have known since, uh, who was in a position to uh, be close enough to Castro so that uh, it could be administered uh, if need be. So keep in mind, the CIA was partnering up with the mafia at the very moment when Robert Kennedy was waging a holy war against them. And there's overwhelming evidence, I should say, that Bobby knew all about this and approved it as he was trying to shut down La Cosa Nostra in the States. Crazy. I just wanted to mention that. It still blows my mind all of these years later. Anyway, there were many other plots to kill Castro. There was a scheme to place a rare shellfish toxin in Castro's scuba suit. CIA's technical division developed an irritant that was supposed to make Castro's beard fall out, reasoning that his beard was a source of his appeal with the Cuban people. CIA tried to poison his cigars and place a skin-activated poison in his shoes when he attended an international conference. One plot involved setting up exploding seashells on a private beach where Castro liked to go out for his morning swim. So, like the Lumumba operation, none of the Castro plots ever materialized. The closest the CIA ever came to this was in its alliance with the mafia, but that plan failed when the mob's operative on the ground could never get close enough to kill his target. At the end of the day, neither the CIA nor the mafia could penetrate Castro's inner circle. Now, I should say, I am not opposed on principle to plotting the murder of a head of state in, you know, extreme situations. It really depends on the leader and the context. Operation Foxley, a British scheme in World War II to kill Adolf Hitler, well, that's fine by me. In the case of Castro, he was a monster who oversaw a plantation masquerading as a nation state. If the CIA could help other Cubans oust him, I would not object. But plotting assassinations against leaders of countries where America is not formally at war risks blowback. That is the unintended consequence of covert actions. It's a sort of term of art 
The left loves this. They use blowback to explain everything. But it really just means there are going to be unintended consequences when you engage in this kind of skullduggery. Anyway, I bring all this up because it's worth asking. Could one such consequence of these assassination schemes been the assassination of President John F. Kennedy? All right, then what are you saying now? That everybody uh, on the Warren Commission is in on this conspiracy, right? Well, why not? Yeah, Earl Warren. Hey, honey, I don't know Earl Warren. Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon, jo Lyndon Johnson is a politician. You know the ethics those guys have. It's like a, a notch underneath child molester. Then everybody's in on the conspiracy. The FBI and the CIA and J. Edgar Hoover and oil companies and the Pentagon and the men's room attendant at the White House. Well, I, I would leave out the men's room attendant. Okay, so that was Woody Allen as Albie Singer in his masterpiece, Annie Hall, obsessing over the JFK assassination and in particular the Warren Commission, appointed by President Lyndon Johnson to find the facts and tell the American people the truth. So if you believe one version of this story, the murder of President Kennedy was the ultimate example of an American deep state out of control. It was a CIA conspiracy and nothing threatens the elected government of a democracy more than a coup orchestrated by the institutions entrusted with its national security. All right, so I am not going to spend a lot of time on this question of who shot John. This is not what this podcast is about. For what it's worth, I am persuaded that the likeliest explanation is that Lee Harvey Oswald, his assassin, acted alone. Here I recommend The Interloper, among other books, but I think The Interloper is a really great one by my friend Peter Savodnik, which examines in vivid detail, Oswald's sojourn to the Soviet Union, and I want to quote from it here. Perhaps the most compelling argument against the claim that Oswald was recruited by an intelligence agency that, so that he might wreak havoc in the United States is Oswald himself, and more to the point, his psychology. As Oswald's suicide attempt illustrates, he was difficult and irascible, and at times histrionic self-pitying and reckless. He could hardly have been counted on to do or finish anything that a professional clandestine organization would rely on Oswald to pull off what would have been one of the most dangerous operations ever, the assassination of an American president, is absurd, end quote. All right, so Peter had the benefit of knowing much more about Lee Harvey Oswald when he wrote that book in the early 20-teens, than anyone in the U.S. government in 1963, or for that matter, 1975, when the church committee begins its work. That said, it's not crazy in the 1960s to reject the principal conclusion of the Warren Commission that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. Let's start with Oswald. He defected, of course, to the Soviet Union in 1959. Again, Peter had the benefit of, you know, living in Russia and going to the places where Oswald lived and interviewing people who knew him and seeing files that had been released by this Soviet, you know, former Soviet files, all kinds of things that he had access to that at the time, Americans, and for that matter, our government did not. So the idea that he goes to the Soviet Union in 1959 and then returns to the States in 1962, well, that's a red flag for anybody with, you know, eyes to see and ears to listen. And add to this that he tried to murder a right-wing retired army general named Edwin Walker. Oswald was also a member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which lobbied to end the embargo on the island. And while the American people did not know it at the time, though the CIA and FBI certainly did, Oswald had been to the Cuban embassy in Mexico City before he came to Dallas, Texas, 
to kill the president. Sir, you the president? I work in that building. Were you in the building at the time? Naturally, if I work in that building, yes, sir. Back up, man. For two days after protesting that he was a patsy, a nightclub owner, Jack Ruby, shot Lee Harvey Oswald on national television. So these are all very suspicious facts that would lead even the most credulous citizens to suspect that Oswald had co-conspirators. And here I want to just say, it, most people, I, I don't think that the CIA explanation is plausible in this case, although... At some point, we'll have Jefferson Morley on, who I think makes an interesting case on that. But certainly, lots of people in this moment would be looking at all of those facts and say to themselves, maybe this guy was sent by Castro. Maybe he was sent by Khrushchev. So one of those people who had doubts about Oswald acting alone is Lyndon Baines Johnson. He did not believe that Oswald acted alone. Nonetheless, he impaneled the Warren Commission to dispel the very suspicions that he harbored. So here's one of his senior advisors, Joe Califano, in an interview with ABC News in 1976. President Johnson, uh, on more than one occasion, uh, made two points about the Kennedy assassination. One was uh, a very strong suspicion, at some points coming out as a conviction from Johnson, uh, that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald did not act alone that he was either assisted and or inspired by others. And the second point was, uh, and a point that Johnson also held on some occasions as a strong suspicion and on other occasions that he'd state as a conviction, that what happened to uh, John Kennedy at the hands of Lee Harvey Oswald was a response uh, and retaliation for activities that the CIA or other elements of the United States government were conducting against Castro or the Cuban government. Johnson would also acknowledge that he believed Oswald had co-conspirators in a 1969 interview with Walter Cronkite. At the time, CBS News was asked not to air that part of the interview for national security reasons, even though Johnson never mentioned CIA assassination attempts against Castro in the interview. The network eventually did air it in 1976 in the same special report that included the Califano interview. Here is a clip. I can't uh, honestly say that I've ever been completely relieved of the fact that uh, there might have been international connections. You mean you still feel that there might might have been? Uh, well, I have not completely discounted. Okay, so Johnson was worried the United States would be dragged into a full-blown war with the Soviets if Americans believed that Oswald was sent by Moscow or Havana. This comes out in the recorded conversations Johnson has with the people that he is recruiting to serve on the Warren Commission. He says explicitly that it would be terrible for the country to have multiple investigations with witnesses and experts, implying there was a foreign hand in the killing of John F. Kennedy. Here's a snip between the president and his former mentor, Senator Richard Russell. Russell was reluctant to join the Warren Commission. As a segregationist, he loathed Chief Justice Earl Warren. We should say also that Dick Russell in this conversation also says that he thinks maybe Castro was behind it. But Johnson was persistent. Dick has already been announced, and you can serve with anybody for the good of America. And uh, uh, this, is a, this is a question that has a good many more ramifications than on the surface. And uh, uh, there 
we've got to take this out of the arena where they're testifying that Khrushchev and Castro did this and did that and uh, kicking us into a war that can kill 40 million Americans in an hour. So all of this reminds me of what we learned in the last year about Anthony Fauci's efforts to deny that the COVID-19 pandemic may have resulted from a leak from a lab in Wuhan, China. Plenty of scientists and experts around Fauci believe the lab leak was more plausible than the theory that COVID's origins occurred in nature. But Fauci was tempted by crisis. He and others in the public health bureaucracy did not trust the public with the messier truth of the matter, that it's unclear. Just like LBJ, they chose to tell a noble lie instead of the hard truth. After all, if Americans believe China's negligence was responsible for the coronavirus, Americans may demand vengeance, just as Johnson worried that Americans would demand war if they believed that Kennedy's assassination was revenge for the CIA's efforts to kill Castro. President Johnson was not the only senior government official to suspect the Soviets or the Cubans were behind the Kennedy assassination. The CIA initial report on the matter, authored by John Winton, concluded there was no hard proof that Oswald was part of a conspiracy, but there was plenty of circumstantial evidence. Several other CIA leaders also did not believe the lone government theory, at least in this period. One of them was James Jesus Angleton. The moon was all aglow And heaven was in your eyes The night that you told me Those little white lies The stars all... We've talked about Angleton on The Re-Education before. Check out my Wilderness of Mirrors episode, the aforementioned Peter Savodnik. He is one of the most fascinating figures of the 20th century Angleton is. His mannerisms, penchant for long literary discursions, and his style, a three-piece suit with a black Homburg hat. Well, it exemplifies the popular concept of the deep state. And I will be getting into more detail about Angleton in this future project I mentioned at the opening of the episode. But what you need to know about Angleton for this episode is that as the chief of the agency's counterintelligence office, he had been tracking Oswald since his defection in 1959. He read mail between Oswald and his mother. He knew that Oswald had been photographed at the Cuban consulate in Mexico City less than two months before the assassination, and he knew the details about the many CIA plots to kill Castro. The CIA did end up eventually sharing with the commission much of the take on Oswald's visits to the Cuban consulate and other things like that, but the agency director at the time, Richard Helms, told the commission that it only learned that information during a review of its holdings after the assassination. Well, that wasn't true. And here I want to quote from Jefferson Morley's The Ghost. Quote, The CIA claimed it did not know the purpose of Oswald's visit to Mexico and did not know that Oswald had contacted the Cubans in late September until after JFK was dead. That was a lie. Wynne Scott, the station chief in Mexico City, knew about Oswald's visit to the Cuban consulate at the time it happened. He wrote as much in his memoirs and reported it in cables read by Angleton's successor, George Kolaris. But the cover story seemed plausible to the Warren Commission, which published it in its final report. It just wasn't true. End quote. All right, so here we have another deception within a deception. The Warren Commission is impaneled with the purpose of dispelling rumors that Oswald may have acted on behalf of Cuba or Russia, even though some of its own commissioners themselves believe that he might have. And 
it was not, as it purported to be, just a sort of just the facts, ma'am, exercise. It was an exercise in order to control public perception. The CIA, in its effort to cover its ass, also kept crucial information from that commission about how it was tracking Oswald after his return to the States. Add to this that the CIA director in charge of the agency when the Castro assassination plots were hatched, Alan Dulles, was himself a member of the Warren Commission. Dulles could have told his fellow commissioners at any time that he had firsthand knowledge that the CIA had all these plots to kill Castro. He never did. That piece of information was kept from the so-called fact-finders. The most important information kept from the Warren Commission involved a Cuban agent named Rolando Cubella, codename Amlash. On the day JFK was murdered, a CIA officer met with Cubella in Paris and delivered an assassination device, literally a poison pen. It had a hypodermic syringe embedded inside that contained a poison known as Black Leaf Number 40. Before that meeting in Mexico City, Kubela met with a Soviet consular official who the agency suspected was KGB, named Vladimir Kostikov. Now, this nugget was unearthed by the tireless Jefferson Morley. If Kubela was a double agent, which this certainly suggests, meeting with a KGB guy, then Castro would have clearly known about the agency's plot to kill him. Yet none of this information made it to the Warren Commission. Dick Helms, who at the time was in charge of the CIA's clandestine operations, would later in 1978 tell Congress at a hearing that the plots against Castro were not the rogue actions of the CIA. It was government policy. Here he is in a testy exchange with a young representative, Chris Dodd. Why didn't you want to tell the Warren Commission? Or why didn't you tell the Warren Commission about the efforts to get rid of of Fidel Castro or to overthrow the Cuban government. But Mr. Dodd, you're singling me out as to why I didn't march up and tell the Warren Commission when these operations against uh, Cuba were known to the Attorney General of the United States, the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State, the Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs, the President of the United States himself, although he at that point was dead. I mean, all kinds of people knew about these operations high up in the government. In that clip, we see a tension that I talked about in the first episode, the two deep state narratives. On the one hand, the CIA has lots of information that it keeps from the Warren Commission, enabling a cover-up of sorts, a cover-up that led, in my view, to the legitimation crisis for government institutions like the CIA in the 1970s. On the other hand, Helms credibly argues that the agency was following the president's orders. At the time, this was disputed by other Kennedy administration alumni, that said, both the Church Committee and its House counterpart, the Pike Committee, ended up concluding that the agency almost always acted on behalf of the president at the time. It's a little interesting because Frank Church famously accused the CIA of being a, a rogue elephant, meaning that it was you know, sort of a, a law unto itself. And sometimes, I mean, there's evidence that the CIA did things and maybe the president didn't know. We talked about that in the first episode. But the actual re final report from the Church Committee does say that most of these sort of operations were approved by the president through various kinds of intergovernment committees and so forth. Anyway, now I want to just note here an irony, which is that the Soviets were just as paranoid about the Kennedy assassination as Lyndon Johnson and James Angleton. They thought it was a plot of right-wing reactionaries centering around H.L. Hunt, a Southern oil magnate, we had met with Jack Ruby shortly before JFK's murder. Here I want to quote from Vasily Matrokin and Christopher Andrews, definitive history of the Soviet KGB, the sword and the shield. Quote, 
It would have been wholly out of character had the center failed to interpret President Kennedy's assassination by Lee Harvey Oswald in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963, as anything less than conspiracy. The deputy chairman of the KGB reported to the Central Committee in December. A reliable source of the Polish Friends, that is the Polish Intelligence Service, relays that an American entrepreneur and owner of a number of firms closely connected to the petroleum circles of the South reported in late November that the real instigators of this criminal deed were three leading oil magnates from the South of the USA, Richardson, Murchison, and Hunt, all owners of major petroleum reserves in the Southern states who have long been connected to pro-fascist and racist organizations in the South, end quote. Andrew and Matrokin go on to write that Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev himself likely believed the KGB theory, saying that the aim of the conspirators was to intensify the Cold War and, quote, strengthen the reactionary and aggressive elements of American foreign policy. That's what Khrushchev is uh, likely to have believed, or at least said, said, he thought at one point. Now, I want to pause here to make a point about state secrecy. It's true. In many cases, it is necessary to protect state secrets for the national interest. But when state secrecy is excessive, as it was in Cold War America and the Soviet Union, it also has the effect of dementing the keepers of those secrets. To illustrate, let's consider Yuri Nosenko. We briefly discussed Nosenko in part one. He was the Soviet defector who was disappeared and psychologically tortured, only to be released after his interrogators finally believed he wasn't trying to deceive them. This was one of the scandals of the family jewels. Nosenko was also a key piece of the Oswald-Kennedy puzzle. His story begins in 1962. He's a KGB officer attached to a Soviet arms control delegation in Geneva. On the trip, he approaches a State Department official whom he incorrectly believed was a CIA officer. He makes his pitch. At first, he wants money. But shortly after the JFK assassination, he says he wants to defect. The agency moves heaven and earth to exfiltrate their asset to America. And at first, all of the information checks out. But many have their suspicions, chief among them, James Jesus Angleton. The problem for Angleton was that Nosenko seemed too good to be true. Here was a relatively new spy for the CIA who now claimed to be Oswald's handler when he defected to Moscow. He was confirming what the Warren Commission would eventually conclude. He said that Oswald was entirely unstable and unsuitable for covert action. Oswald was so distressed when he was told he could not stay in the Soviet Union, for example, that he attempted suicide. Now, eventually, the KGB kind of made it possible for Oswald to have a new life in Minsk where he met his wife, Marina. But the point is that, like Savodnik said, he was entirely erratic and unstable, and the KGB opted to eventually make his transition to Soviet life work, but they would send these ass their own kind of internal spies, their own assets, to the factory where he was working and, you know, to sort of check in on him. And at times even befriend him and you know, try to give him some confidence and rebuild his life in this new country. I should also say that the KGB also secretly bugged his apartment in Minsk as well, as you would expect they would. The point is that the KGB had a long, long file on Oswald. All right, so now I want to quote from Richard Helms's memoir, A Look Over My Shoulder, to give a sense of how the senior ranks, including Angleton, looked this gift horse in the mouth, as it were. Quote, It was not surprising that the KGB found Oswald too unstable to consider using for any operational purpose. Unstable he surely was. But the KGB failure to take even the slightest security precautions before allowing Oswald to remain in the USSR did not square with Soviet security procedures as we knew them. Equally odd was the alleged failure of Soviet intelligence to 
questioned the ex-Marine on his military background. Had the Russians trouble to ask, they would have learned that Oswald had served in a radar unit on an airbase that sometimes accommodated a U-2 aircraft, both topics of considerable interest to the Soviet intelligence at the time. The assertion that the KGB did not trouble to investigate the possibility that Oswald was a CIA plant before allowing him to remain in the USSR also seemed highly unlikely. Nosenko's alleged knowledge of Lee Harvey Oswald seemed out of context with his professional responsibilities and assignment. Some of the details Nosenko offered on his own education and his military and intelligence careers were unconvincing. End quote. Now, I just want to say a couple things about what Helms says here. The Soviets already had the U-2 aircraft by the time Oswald defected. I, I think that was some bad information that the agency had because there's evidence that the KGB did spend a lot of time debriefing him. And, uh, you know, Savodnik kind of gets into that in his book. Okay. So the CIA had a crucial piece of information right in front of its nose, and yet it chose not to believe it. The same should be said for the KGB that also suspected a conspiracy with Oswald and like the CIA and these oil magnates when their own guy, Nosenko, had correctly assessed that JFK's assassin was just too nuts to deploy as an operative. What happened next was a travesty. Nosenko was not given a new life and a pension in America as he was initially promised. Instead, he was taken to a dungeon. And here I want to read again from Morley's great biography of Angleton, the ghost, quote, at Angleton's behest, the CIA reneged on its promise to Nosenko on orders from Dave Murphy. He was taken to a CIA safe house in Southern Maryland and involuntarily detained in the attic. The room featured a metal bed attached to the floor. He was fed weak tea, watery soup, and porridge. There was no air conditioning or ventilation. Nosenko had landed in what a future generation would call a black site, an extrajudicial CIA prison. He would remain in detention for more than four years. The interrogations that Nosenko endured for this time were horrific. An audio tape from the agency's archives features the defector pleading with his CIA interrogator in Russian, from my soul, from my soul, I beg of you to believe me, he says. And then his interrogator, an officer named Pete Bagley, yells back, bullshit, bullshit. So why did Angleton in this moment decide Nosenko was a plant? Well, the ghost had been taken in by another defector, Anatoly Golitsyn. And this is another fascinating character, but for the purpose of this episode, I'm going to keep it brief. We should just say that Golitsyn was a defector who persuaded the head of counterintelligence for the CIA that every defector that came after him was a double agent. Angleton ended up adoring Golitsyn and even at one point likely leaked a story to the British tabloids that forced him to return to America. That's another, by the way, great nugget from Morley's biography of Angleton. I don't necessarily agree with everything. I don't agree with all of the conclusions of Morley's biography, but you really have to read it if you're into this stuff, because he just digs up so much great detail. Now, it should be said here that by the 1960s, Angleton was nearly a broken man. His mentor and friend in the spy trade, British agent named Kim Fulby, who taught him the dark arts of espionage and counterintelligence during World War II, while well, he turned out the whole time to have been a spy for the Soviet Union. Angleton, at first, you know, he stood up for Philby when he first came under suspicion in the early 1950s, when Philby's treachery could not be denied after he defected to Moscow in 1963, Angleton became obsessed with what he called the monster plot. There was another mole inside the CIA, he believed, and Nosenko was sent to protect him. Angleton's paranoia and penchant for secrecy was legendary. He not only ruined the careers of several officers whom he wrongly accused of treason, he also tried to persuade, at one point, the British government that Prime Minister Harold Wilson was a Soviet agent of influence and that his main rival in the Labour Party was murdered by the KGB. 
He disbelieved the Soviet split with communist China, claiming it was an elaborate deception. At one point, Angleton privately informed the French government that the CIA's station chief in Paris might be a Soviet spy, even though his own counterintelligence staff investigated the allegations and found nothing. The CIA director at the time, William Colby, had to intervene, overriding Angleton's request of the French to surveil him. So it's not surprising that Angleton also doubted Nosenko's bona fides. Angleton pretty much doubted everybody in this period. Eventually, the CIA gave Nosenko his pension and resettled him in America. But for years after that, his case still remained open. And finally, at the end of the Cold War, the CIA concluded that Yuri Nosenko was telling the truth. The assessment determined that Nosenko gave up too much legitimate information to have been a plant. For example, Nosenko fingered nearly 300 Soviet intelligence agents and overseas contacts. He provided information on 52 hidden microphones planted at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. So here is a passage from Tim Wiener's History of the CIA, Legacy of Ashes. Quote, To believe in the master plot, it was necessary to take four things on faith. First, that Moscow would trade all that information to protect one mole. Second, that all communist defectors were agents of deception. Third, that the immense Soviet intelligence apparatus existed solely to mislead the United States. And last, that an impenetrable communist conspiracy lay behind the Kennedy assassination. End quote. The master plot just wasn't true. But James Jesus Angleton, demented by excessive secrecy, nonetheless believed it was. I remember when you were down And you needed a helping hand I came to feed you But now that I need you You won't give me a second glance Now I'm calling on citizens From all over the world This is Captain America calling I bailed you up when you were down on your knees So will it catch me now I'm falling Back to 1975, and the country was a mess. It's the year America lost its first war. The image of Americans climbing onto a helicopter from the roof of the CIA station in Saigon is seared into the memories of the generation that lived through this defeat. The country was stuck in something known as stagflation. That is when the economy experiences the twin plagues of high unemployment and high inflation. Our greatest city, New York, went bankrupt. Its streets were dirty and menaced by stick-up men and panhandlers. The movies in 1975 kind of portrayed this new paranoia about the American deep state. Robert Redford's classic Three Days of the Condor comes to mind. That told the story of a CIA analyst that discovers how his own agency planned the murder of the quiet literary office in New York where he worked. It's a great film. I really recommend it. This was not a tale of James Bond outwitting supervillains. Hollywood was reflecting the national mood. Add to this the 1974 midterm elections. Democrats cleaned up in the aftermath of Richard Nixon's resignation. So there was renewed interest to begin to hold the deep state accountable in Congress that maybe wasn't there before. The Watergate class of Democrats were progressives who forged their political identities in this moment of profound national distrust. And this created a culture clash. The buttoned-up CIA and FBI men in their three-piece suits, white shirts, and conservative ties would be grilled by committee staffers who would often come to the office dressed for an Allman Brothers concert. In his biography of CIA Director William Colby, Randall Woods 
quotes the deputy director for intelligence at the time, Edward Proctor, recalling how a staffer with Otis Pike's House Special Committee, quote, came to my office to interview me. She had on blue jeans that had been cut off at the calf and shredded, and she was barefoot. I just love that image of like, you know, this sort of like hippie-ish Democrat staffer, you know, going down to the you know, Langley headquarters for the CIA and like, you know, like demanding answers, you know, I just think it's great. Anyway, here is how Fritz Schwartz, Scion, by the way, of the FAO Schwartz, kind of the toy store in New York, he's, that's his family, but he served as the general counsel of the church committee. And here he is describing the mood in Congress as Senator Church was getting ready to expose all of these dark secrets. I think the events of Watergate and the furor about the Vietnam War and the leaks uh, like the Pentagon Papers had led to a pent-up interest in what the secret government had been doing. So instead of don't ask, don't tell, it was please let us know. Until the Watergate hearings, Congress didn't really pay much attention to the secret government fighting the Cold War. Yeah, you know, there were subcommittees in the House and the Senate, and in theory, they performed a kind of oversight, I guess, of the CIA and the NSA and the FBI. But these committees were dominated by Southern Democrats who supported the Vietnam War and the broader struggle against international communism. And, you know, they were not alone. There were a lot of leading Republicans who were in the same camp. And even somebody like William Fulbright, who was known, he was the powerful chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And Fulbright, you know, himself was queasy with all of this disclosure. He ended up writing in 1975 a piece for the Columbia Journalism Review, which actually like urged reporters to maybe not publish pieces that were too embarrassing to the CIA, believe it or not. And remember, it was also, you know, Daniel Ellsberg initially gives the Pentagon Papers to, to Fulbright, who ended up doing nothing with it. So that was, I just want to sort of, that was the mood, that was sort of how it was done before church. Now, not everybody agreed with this approach, by the way. And one person who one of the secret government to come clean, and he, he secretly kind of had this, you know, contention for years, well, it was Mike Mansfield. He's the Senate majority leader at the time. Mansfield was frustrated with the agency's excessive secrecy. But, you know, there was never enough support, even in his own party, to change the way the business was done. But after Cy Hirsch reveals those family jewels, well, suddenly there was a lot of interest. Mansfield created a new select committee, and he made sure that this new committee would not be dominated by the senators who failed to do the real oversight before. He also made sure that the committee would include a cross-section of senators, not just having being Republicans and Democrats, but he would have, you know, hawks and doves and people from across the spectrum. So this committee, you know, it had a young progressive on it like Gary Hart, who was fresh off of managing the campaign for Senator McGovern and now a senator from Colorado, as well as, as, well as cold warriors like Barry Goldwater, who was skeptical of the new ethos of maximum disclosure. And I think it made for a fascinating mix. I want to just play a brief clip here from Barry Goldwater at one of those hearings, making the case that a lot of these states' secrets should remain secret. Every time I pick up a morning paper or an evening paper and I see the disclosure of secrets that I thought were locked up in my brain or my heart or my safe, I get worried about my country. Okay, so this may seem counterintuitive, to put a guy who wants to protect the deep state on a committee dedicated to exposing it. 
but it was a master stroke. Because its members covered the political spectrum, the church committee's findings cannot be blithely dismissed as a partisan exercise. It's one of the reasons why its work is so relevant half a century after its formation. By contrast, look at the January 6th committee, which I think will be forgotten in a few years because all of its members went into the inquiry in agreement. It's why the church committee actually resulted in real reforms, not just in Congress, but also within the executive branch, and the January 6th committee really hasn't amounted to much. So at first, Mansfield wanted New Jersey Democrat Phil Hart to lead up the effort to investigate the deep state. Because, you know, this is a guy who was respected by conservatives and liberals and kind of had friends all, all over the place. But Hart was at the time suffering from cancer and bowed out. And in his stead, he recommended Senator Church. Born in 1924 in Boise, Idaho, to a middle-class Catholic family, Frank Church is today an enigma. He is known as a liberal icon. But I don't know that he would fit today in the Democratic Party. I mean, Church's investigation was devastating to the FBI, as we covered in earlier shows. He exposed all the details of Pro and made public the Bureau's sinister political warfare against Martin Luther King. And Church was a firm believer in the Second Amendment. I mean... He was a liberal that represented the state that turned ruby red. Contrast that to today's Democrats who seem to love the FBI and consider, you know, the Second Amendment to be, you know, the stain on the Constitution. So I just just throwing it out there that Frank Church is somebody who I don't know where you would classify him if he was a, around today. OK, in some ways, you know, Church is a throwback to another era of intellectual statesmen, men like Daniel Patrick Moynihan or James Buckley, you know. Church from an early age really displayed a ferocious intelligence and facility with language. So at, at age 14 in 1939, he drafted a letter to the Boise Capitol News defending isolationism, a cause synonymous with his hero, Idaho Senator William Borah. It was so well written that the editor published the work by this eighth grader and put it on the front page. In high school, Church wins a national award from the American Legion for a public oratory. He was, of course, his class president. And at age 18, he volunteered for the U.S. Army. Like most of the men of his generation, he fought in this war, in the Great War, in the war that saved the world from darkness, World War II. Eventually, he was stationed in China and India, where he served as an intelligence officer. He was very good at it. He won lots of awards and promotions. He was recruited to sort of join a new spy service after World War II, but he declined. He had other plans after attending law school at Stanford, surviving a bout of testicular cancer that left him sterile. Frank Church ran for Senate, and he actually managed to win. I get into uh, more of his first campaign in the interview section of part one of Church and Deep State, you know, with Jim and Tom Risen. Anyway, I mention all this because when Church joins the Senate in 1957, he is a cold warrior, much like John F. Kennedy, and both men become very close. Church introduces JFK at the 1960 convention. Over time, though, Senator Church evolves, or you could say maybe that he regresses. Remember, his original hero was William Borah, a senator that was on the wrong side of history when it came to World War II. You could say that Church's reverence for Borah in an era when isolationism was considered a slur put him on the right side of history when it came to the war in Vietnam. A bloodbath without equal in human history. With the stakes mortally high, we must not permit the stifling of dissent in the United States. So as the war got bloodier and American involvement got deeper, Church becomes more radical. In 1968, 
he delivers a famous speech on the floor of the Senate called The Torment in the Land. It's ostensibly a call to end the Vietnam War, but it's much more than that. And here I want to read a little bit from it right now. Quote, Our policy of global intervention has meant war, not peace. During the past 25 years, the United States has engaged in more warfare than any other major power, than at least any other power. Then at least have we not brought favor? Once more, the honest answer is no. Our insistent involvement in the internal affairs of so many foreign countries meets with rising resentment and suspicion. Fear blinds us. Fear of communism, which transcends faith in freedom. Fear of a future that we cannot shape with our own hands. Fear of sudden devastation hurling down from the skies. The nuclear monster we ourselves unleashed returns like Frankensteins to haunt our lives. Well, okay. So I want to just point out that Frank Church is not just talking about Vietnam in this speech. He's talking about American hegemony, America's role in the world, America as a superpower. He is previewing, in some ways, you could say, the kind of limp neutralism that we associate today with Jimmy Carter's presidency and the Democrats of the late 1970s and the 1980s. Not my cup of tea. And, you know, kind of asking, like, what do we get for supporting freedom movements? You know, what, what's the point of all this? And I think I would say the U.S. victory in the Cold War, which Church did not live to see, he died in 1984 from pancreatic cancer, is a persuasive counterpoint to his question. You know, one need only to talk to former Soviet dissidents like Natan Sharansky to know that American support for those movements that resisted communism were essential to people who were suffering in these totalitarian countries at the time. So I give all this background because Frank Church was a man for the moment in 1975. He was himself a former intelligence officer, and that gave him, I think, both the gravitas but also the experience to call bullshit on the CIA in his middle age. Church also had a safe seat, relatively speaking. In 1967, right-wingers in his state attempted and failed to stir up a recall campaign against him because of his opposition to the war in Vietnam, and that backfired, and Church not only beat back the recall attempt, but he wins re-election in 1968, even as Idaho's voters were becoming more and more conservative. So it's a very conservative state, but Frank Church is such a skilled politician that He's able to say, listen, I don't like this war, even though probably a lot of people in Idaho thought it was the right thing to do. And he still wins the re-election. He's still a very popular figure. So Frank Church himself was also a bit of a loner in the Senate. You know, he liked publicity. And the celebrity that he earned as an early opponent from the Vietnam War meant that there were a lot of other celebrities who wanted to befriend him. I mean, for example, the great actor Marlon Brando was a family friend. That's a great detail, by the way, in the Risen's book. But Church did not engage in the kind of carousing that was just all too common among senators of this era. You know, the Risen's write that he privately disdained his fellow lawmakers who would boast about their adulterous sexual conquests. And this earned him the nickname Senator Cathedral or Senator Sunday School. Church's independence streak made him dangerous as well to elements of the Washington establishment. In a preview of the Church Committee, the senator led an investigation in 1974 into major American corporations and bribery known as the ITT scandal. It would be the first time Congress learned about the CIA's role in influencing Chilean politics and ultimately supporting the coup that toppled Salvador Allende. Now, I don't want to overpraise Senator Cathedral here. His reflexive opposition to American hegemony made him, in my view, dangerously na naive about thugs like Fidel Castro, for example. Idaho Senator Frank Church is back from a four-day visit to Cuba and says moves toward further diplomatic relations with America's closest communist neighbor rest with the United States. As far as the United States is concerned, 
uh, I see the beginnings of a improvement in our relations. But the same quality that led Church to take off for Havana in foolish hopes of detente also immunized him from the ideological smokescreen that allowed the CIA and FBI to explain away abuses of their power in the name of fighting Soviet communism. In 1975, those qualities were crucial to taking on a secret government that had grown accustomed to wielding its power without accountability. I'm sick and tired of November 1975, Church stood up to the deep state. In the weeks before, his committee drafted its chapter on CIA assassination plots. The committee came under enormous pressure to keep that report secret. There was an impasse, so Church took the question to the full Senate on November 20th, 1975, but the Senate broke down. Mansfield feared that if he called a vote, Church might lose. No matter. Church had always believed he had the authority to publish the chapter on his own. And after the Senate couldn't agree, he went ahead and did just that. So I want to quote now from Church's Senate floor speech while he's fighting on the issue of putting, of making the assassination chapter public. We believe the truth about the assassination charges should be told because democracy depends upon an informed electorate. Truth is the very anchor of our democracy. We wrestled long and hard with the contention that the facts disclosed in this report should be kept secret since they are embarrassing to the United States, we concluded that despite any temporary injury to our national reputation, foreign peoples will, upon sober reflection, respect the United States more for keeping faith with its democratic ideals than they will condemn us for the misconduct revealed. We doubt that any other country would have the courage to make such a disclosure, and I personally believe this to be the unique strength of the American Republic. End quote. Well, you know, I would say that you could, it's easy to dismiss Church's argument as a kind of liberal piety. It sounds like something you might hear in the West Wing, straight from Aaron Sorkin's laptop. You know, there's a fair argument. American power should be reserved to advance American interests, not to be some moral exemplar for the world. Besides, as awful as some of the plots revealed by the family jewels and the church committee were, it really didn't compare to the cruelties and deceptions of the Soviets. I mean, how will your precious privacy rights and the public's right to know going to defend Western Europe from the Red Army, some church critics might ask. Not me, but anyway. So that's, I just want to point out that, you know, I wanted to give church's argument that we would be respected for having the courage to come clean. And then the other argument is like, you know what, let's not kid ourselves. People are not going to take America's side because they think we're wonderful. And I think this is um, an, an eternal question when it comes to like international relations and foreign policy and so forth whether you know the idea of soft power and trump's like just sort of the hard realities of geopolitics anyway i just want to say that i find truth on both sides of that argument but i support what church did for a slightly different reason because in my view the painful disclosures forced by church in 1975 probably saved the cia at the time the u.s government and the cia in particular were experiencing as I said earlier, a legitimation crisis. Only 14% of Americans in 1975, according to a Gallup poll that year, approved the CIA. It was only 9%, by the way, of Americans like under 25, and those are the people that the agency is supposed to be recruiting. So it was a real problem. What's more, by the time Church releases that chapter on assassinations, 
I guess, you know, a lot of it was known already, not all of it, but a lot of it was. The columnist Drew Pearson broke the first story on the agency's attempts to kill Castro in 1967. A few years later, his protege Jack Anderson filled in more details, like the mafia connections, after he learned of the CIA's own Inspector General report. By 1975, Castro was publicizing what he claimed were CIA plots against him, so he even provided a report to Senator George McGovern's office on it. Here's McGovern, who was the Democratic nominee for president in 1972, sharing what he learned from Castro on a trip to Havana at a press conference in Washington. I have no way uh, verifying these uh, allegations, but uh, if they are true, I think it's clear the CIA has been engaged in the most shocking uh, murderous and un-American activities against the leaders of a neighboring state. All right. I mean, there's an argument here that George McGovern was kind of being a useful stooge, but it turned out, as we talked about earlier, that the CIA really was trying to kill Fidel Castro. Okay. And then, like, let's add to this the revelations about, you know, Chile and Watergate, the lingering disbelief millions of Americans at the Warren Commission. Americans were just, like, in no mood in 1975 for yet another cover-up. Neither was Congress. So even though the Church Committee's report ended up doing reputational harm, no doubt about it, to the CIA and the FBI, I think it also began a process of reform that allowed these institutions to survive. So without a doubt, Church deserves a lot of credit for it. We just went through all of that. But he could not have done it alone. He could not have pried these secrets from the deep state without a quiet ally on the inside. CIA Director William Egan Colby. Listen. So we discussed Colby in part one, the refresh, looks like the consummate prep, but, you know, underneath is just nothing but a warrior. And, you know, you can see this, I've read a lot of books now on Colby, but he's known as somebody who, you know, kind of like marches to the sound of the guns. He, he wants to be in the fight. He's a warrior who lives for war. All right, so before Cy Hirsch's explosive story revealing the existence of the family jewels, which as you remember, Colby ends up confirming, you know, the CIA director, Bill Colby, already shared that report with the Justice Department, and he shared it with the Rockefeller Commission. His decision to memorialize this record of crimes and blunders, instead of erasing the evidence, made the church disclosures possible in the first place. Like church, Colby also understood that the only way for the CIA to survive was to rebuild the trust that it had squandered. Now, to capture Colby's attitude in this period, I want to share an anecdote about the Rockefeller Commission. After one of the CIA director's briefings, Vice President Rockefeller calls Colby aside, gently reminds him that he can always refuse to answer questions if they're too sensitive. Bill, Rockefeller said, do you really have to present all this material to us? We realize that there are secrets that you fellas need to keep. End quote. All right. So Colby's openness infuriated others in the Ford administration. Henry Kissinger, for example, had his staff pressure Colby to deny all the allegations swirling around the CIA's role in the 1973 coup against Allende. Kissinger and Nixon had approved what's known as Track 2 on Chile policy, which had the agency's operatives forge ties with Chilean military officers seeking to unseat the socialist president. Colby didn't seem to care, by the way. He acknowledged the agency's role in a 1973 interview with Time magazine. Kissinger also plotted against Colby in this period at one point, he asked Acting Attorney General Lawrence Silberman if he wanted Colby's job. Silberman refused him. To get a sense of how Colby's peers in the Ford cabinet viewed this open kimono approach to Congress, let's play a clip from the superb documentary made by Bill Colby's son, Carl, the man no one knew. 
This is James Schlesinger, Colby's predecessor at the CIA, and who in this period was Ford's Secretary of Defense. And when the church committee got rolling, he began to reveal things about the history of the agency that did not have to be revealed at that time. Schlesinger here is engaging in some museum-quality chutzpah. That is the Yiddish word that roughly translates into nerve. I mean, this guy is the one who created the whole mess in the first place when he directed everybody in the CIA to tell him what crimes the agency may have committed, creating a written bureaucratic record that kicked off this whole season of inquiry. And he's now blaming Colby for revealing too much about the CIA's past. It's kind of amazing that this was like what Schlesinger thought, you know, a few decades after this whole went down that he was blaming Colby for it. Anyway, so what made Colby different? And let's say Richard Helms, who helped to destroy the uh, files on MKUltra, the CIA LSD mind control experiment back in 1973. I mean, why didn't Colby just lie? And if you think about it, when you expect a CIA director to lie to Congress, isn't that doesn't go with the territory in a way? Okay, so from Helms's perspective, he was, you know, in a, you could say kind of like an ethical dilemma, which he had two different competing obligations. Helms, by the way, who did lie to Congress about the CIA's role in Chile, would explain in his memoir that he was put in an impossible position in his nomination hearing to be ambassador when he was asked about Chile. Nixon had ordered a top-secret covert action, and he was asked in open session to confirm it. For Helms, Alan Dulles, and prior CIA bosses, this mantra, need to know, a principle that limits the circle of people who are read into a secret program, well, it trumped the public's right to know what its government was doing. That does not mean that Richard Helms is like necessarily a bad guy. It's just that he believed that the, I guess you could say, dictates of secrecy were more important than the, you know, obligation to tell Congress the truth when you testify. So many of Colby's colleagues inside the deep state believed that in this period, Bill Colby was expiating his guilt. So we get into this a little bit in episode one, but Colby is responsible in Vietnam for what's Operation Phoenix, something that he would insist until the end of his life was not solely an assassination program, but nonetheless empowered local Vietnamese militias that tortured and murdered suspected Viet Cong insurgents. And in fairness to Colby, he was also responsible for successful programs that protected Vietnamese hamlets from the terror of the Viet Cong. Add to this, as Colby was testifying nearly every week, it seemed, before Congress in 1975, the U.S. was in the process of losing the Vietnam War. As CIA director, Colby briefs Ford's cabinet and pleaded to make preparations to help exfiltrate the tens of thousands of South Vietnamese allies of the U.S. before the fall of Saigon. But he was rebuffed and may have felt guilty that so many were left behind. Finally, Colby's family was grieving. In this period, his daughter, who had suffered from epilepsy, died from about with anorexia. So there's a story that Colby's deputy, General Vernon Walters, remarked in a senior staff meeting in this period. And I'm going to paraphrase here. He said, Bill, I'm a Catholic too, but I'm content to leave my confessions for the confessional. I don't need to do this before Congress. All right, end quote. So here's a former national security advisor, Brent Scowcroft, who at the time was a deputy to Henry Kissinger from that Colby documentary. Well, this is kind of Scowcroft's explanation. Bill really became a tortured soul in this period. He saw his life and his life's work crumbling. I often wondered if Bill was not expiating his sins, starting with the Phoenix program and whatever had gone wrong in it that he felt 
responsible for. Then the tragedy of, of his daughter, that, that he was maybe like Job. He had to atone. Okay, because this is the re-education, I feel the need to offer a dissenting view that I don't entirely agree with. And this, this is from historian John Prados. In his book, William Colby and the Secret Wars of a Controversial Spymaster, Prados concludes that Colby was at times holding back some state secrets, so it wasn't always that Colby was pushing to share. For example, Colby at first argued with the White House against disclosing documents confirming the assassination plots to the Rockefeller Commission. It was the White House in that particular instance that overruled him. And even though Cheney had succeeded in getting the assassinations chapter removed from the commission's final report, the White House nonetheless handed over the material to the church committee. So some of the the point I think that Prados is making here is that it's not entirely Bill Colby's fault that all of these secrets are shared with Congress and eventually get out. Because there were these opportunities that the White House had to just shut things down. There, you know, they called the they created the Rockefeller Commission. They could have said, no, 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 we're not going to send over those documents. And they decided to send them over. So anyway, I think in this sense, Prados is partly correct. So another element here is that Gerald Ford, the accidental president, he's a former member of Congress, and he was unaware of most of these state secrets himself when he assumed the presidency in 1974. And I think in that respect, he was more attuned to the mood of his former colleagues in Congress than somebody like Dick Cheney or Don Rumsfeld or Henry Kissinger. You know, anyway, the other point to make about Gerald Ford is that he was a member of the Warren Commission. So as he's learning all this stuff that was not shared with the Warren Commission, you can imagine that maybe privately his view was, well, you know, we need a clean break. I mean, it's hard to know. And I maybe you could if you did more research. I have not gone through everything in the Ford Library archives. But I'm just pointing out that one explanation here might be that Gerald Ford was on a slightly different square than, you know, Rumsfeld, Cheney, and Kissinger. Okay. In his book, the Randall Woods biography of Colby, Shadow Warrior, there's a great scene. And Kissinger is pleading with President Ford not to hand over the material and assassinations to the church committee, making the argument that it would be better to cover up for the Kennedys. And here we should say that the CIA files show that John Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy were both very aware and also encouraging of these Castro operations. Anyway, Ford replies to the pleadings of Kissinger. Quote, I'm not going to second guess my predecessors. Church wants to let him. The Kennedys will get him. End quote. I like that. Okay, one might think that a CIA director willing to cooperate with the church committee, willing to disclose secrets that had been kept for so many years, well, would be a hero to the new left. I mean, who needs Ramparts magazine when you have the church committee? But if there was a constituency even more hostile to William Colby than the National Security Cabinet of the Ford administration, it would be the anti-war movement. This gets back to Operation Phoenix. So the Vietnam War, more than any other in American history, was a television war. And unlike the highly restricted access for television journalists during the Gulf War and its successor, Operation Iraqi Freedom, cameramen got some astounding and gruesome footage to beam back home. One of these enduring images are the corpses of Viet Cong fighters lined up in a row with the Ace of Spades left on their face, the playing card of the Ace of Spades. That was a kind of calling card for the Vietnamese units of the Phoenix program 
While by the time Colby was the CIA director back in Washington, the anti-war movement drew up posters of Colby's face on an ace of spades in a kind of wanted poster. William Colby, wanted for genocide, that kind of thing. It wasn't just posters either. Colby's family home would routinely receive harassing phone calls from anonymous activists at all hours of the day and night, and in the face of all this opprobrium, Colby was cool as a cucumber. One time, though, he exacted a little revenge. He asked the CIA to trace a persistent caller who would call in the middle of the evening and then say nothing. The next time this man called, Colby answered the phone and called him by his name. He stopped calling. To capture Colby's unflappability, I want to read from historian Randall Wood's book. We've quoted from it a couple times before, and I want to sort of set the scene. Colby had agreed to join a panel at an anti-war conference on Capitol Hill, believe it or not. It was a new left crowd, Vietnam veterans against the war, Quakers, black power types. Michael Harrington, the socialist who was lawmaker, was there. So Colby begins with a short speech justifying covert action from World War II up to the present. He argued that these operations had helped to prevent a third world war. And then he took questions. And here's where I'm going to quote from Randall Woods. Quote, how many did you kill in Phoenix? A young woman shouted from the audience. I'd like to answer that, Colby said. I didn't kill any. Another collective guffaw. He persisted. Phoenix program was designed and started in about 1968 in order to bring some degree of order and regularity to a very unpleasant, nasty war that had preceded it. Colby was asked if the CIA was above the law. Should agency operatives be held to U.S. statutes for actions taken outside the country? There are a lot of illegal things done overseas by our standards, he retorted. End quote. Then Woods goes on to quote one of the great chroniclers of the Vietnam War, the recipient of the Pentagon Papers, Neil Sheehan, who was there that day, quote, he is really tough, extraordinarily tough to stand up to this group and keep his cool. There was an incredible venting of rage in that room, particularly from the young people who really wanted Colby's blood, end quote. So Colby was just taking it from all angles in this period. He was abused in the 31 congressional hearings he testified in before in 1975 from the various House and Senate committees who were now investigating the CIA. In one memorable exchange before the House Subcommittee on Government Information and Individual Rights, the Democratic chairwoman Bella Abzug chastised Colby because CIA reports on the anti-war movement had included her name after she visited the North Vietnamese communist delegation in Paris. This was part of Operation Chaos, which we discussed in part one. And Colby responds, again, cool as a cucumber. He says, if you wish to visit such people abroad, such enemies of the United States... There was no way I was going to keep your name out of our records, end of quote. Now, the House hearings in particular were tough on Colby, more so, I'd say, than even the church committee. By the way, Colby has a back channel to church. They are communicating like offline during this period. Now, at the time, they couldn't know how much pressure he was under from the Ford administration and his own agency. So you have all these like Democrats in the House. And they, they didn't, they just saw Colby as the sort of like the fall guy, maybe, or the public face of what they saw, but they didn't know that, you know, Colby was not particularly very popular, you know, with people like Henry Kissinger. Another part of this, though, was that in 1975, the House Committee, and this one was chaired by Otis Pike, that held, you know, these CIA abuses, it was filled with much more radical members than the Senate Church Committee. There's just more radical House members than radical senators, you could say. You know, so for many of these Democrats, the CIA had no right to keep any information whatsoever from Congress, even the names of agents and assets abroad. So here is Representative Ron Dellums. He's a Democrat from Oakland in 1975, and he's making that argument. You have just stated in open session that you do not trust 435 members of Congress. And it would seem to me for you as one person to make the determination that you do not trust 435 members, each of whom who represent 464,000 people, each of whom won an open election, 
in ostensibly a democratic society, I would say to you, sir, you don't have the right to play God. And here I want to play Colby's response. Mr. Dillon, I am not playing God. I am only enforcing the laws that the, that the Congress passed and the directives of uh, our government to protect some of the necessary secrets of the intelligence business to protect that very free society that both you and I want to protect. Okay, so in that clip, we begin to see the pushback to this year of intelligence. There are limits. The world was still a dangerous place. There was still a Cold War that was on. And part of Colby's legacy, I would say, is to, he is establishing sort of the new rules for balancing the need to know against the right to know. So this plays out in the House Committee chaired by Otis Pike. To set the scene here, the Pike Committee focused more on CIA intelligence failures, like the agency's incorrect assessment in 1973 that war was unlikely to break out between Israel and its Arab neighbors on the eve of the Yom Kippur War. The CIA had provided a summary of its estimates to the Pike Committee, which wanted to release it without redactions. Colby insisted initially five paragraphs be blacked out from any document released to the public. Eventually, those five paragraphs, they were whittled down to only four words. They were, and greater communication security. Those are the words that he wanted blacked out. But they referred to something serious. It was the U.S. ability to intercept and read Egyptian military and diplomatic communications. The New York Times then reports that the Soviets and Egyptians already knew about these U.S. capabilities. And so Otis Pike, already frustrated with Colby, he held a press conference and shared with the public the whole enchilada, including the CIA's objections to any mention of its ability to read Cairo's mail, so to speak. Now, to pick up that scene, again, I'm going to quote from Randall Woods, a shadow warrior, quote, for the committee to flatly ignore my protest and release what I regarded as legitimate secrets placed all our classified material and sensitive information at hazard, Colby later observed. He wrote that, by the way, in his memoir. Kissinger demanded a confrontation, insisting that no more classified material be turned over to the House committee and that everything of a sensitive nature that had been delivered be taken back. Schlesinger and Brent Scowcroft supported him. Ford's chief of staff, Donald Rumsfeld, and White House counsel, John Marsh, both of whom had been congressmen, blanched at the prospect of a no-holds-barred showdown. How are documents already in the committee's hands to be recovered through a contest of arms between the House sergeant-at-arms and a group of CIA operatives? I was certainly with the doves, Colby later recalled, holding that the committees should be given the material they requested with the exception of those that revealed the identities of our officers and agents our relations with foreign intelligence services, and particularly sensitive technological data. The hardliners prevailed, end quote. Okay, so I bring all this up because the final chapter of this extraordinary era of disclosure, this year of intelligence, was when the tide of public opinion shifts back in favor of the executive branch. The catalyzing event was another assassination. This time it was the U.S. station chief, CIA station chief, in Athens, Greece, Richard Welch, Almost a year to the day from when Cy Hirsch publishes his expose on the family jewels in 1974, Welch is gunned down on December 23, 1975, on his way home from a Christmas party. The conservatives in Congress and the Ford administration pounced. So we should say there is nothing linking either the Pike Committee or Church Committee disclosures to the assassination of Richard Welch. There were people who tried to make that argument, and it was wrong. But others invested in the disclosures of, you know, CIA secrets may have had a role, you could argue. In this case, I am talking about a magazine called Counterspy, which was founded in 1973. And it ran articles by former CIA officers in some cases and other kind of anti-war types that sought to identify the CIA officers overseas. I should say one of its main benefactors was the great novelist Norman Mailer. Okay, so 
Here's a co-editor of the magazine responding to charges after Welch's murder that Counterspy ended up sort of contributing to his killing. Do you think that naming Mr. Welch uh, contributed to his death? No. What contributed to his death was the CIA. If anyone is responsible for the death of Mr. Welch, it's the CIA that sent him there to spy and perhaps intervene in the affairs of Greece, Albania, and Yugoslavia. Okay. By way of background, we need to introduce another character in the whole drama, a turncoat CIA officer named Philip Agee. He was a contributor to Counterspy and the author of a 1975 memoir of his time in the CIA that painted a devastating portrait of his assignments in Latin America. The book, Inside the Company, disclosed all kinds of nasty stories about Agee's complicity in torture and support for right-wing paramilitary groups. There is even a passage of Inside the Company where Agee has to test a knockout drug on his pet dog. Okay, Agee was a real thorn in the side for the CIA and... I might do an episode on him at some point in the future. He taunted his former employers by traveling to Cuba and the Soviet Union to say he was doing research. He publicly encouraged the naming and shaming of CIA officers stationed abroad and considered that to be, you know, a noble act of dissent. I totally disagree, but this is what AG is, you know, saying. He held a press conference, for example, in Jamaica announcing the names, addresses, and telephone numbers of the CIA officers stationed there in 1976. So that's Philip Agee. Anyway, uh, I want to play now a clip from another former CIA officer, David Atlee Phillips, and here he is pinning the blame for Welch's murder on Philip Agee. I don't know who pulled the trigger on the pistol that killed Richard Welch. Um, I do know that uh, Agee, in a publication in this country, before uh, Richard Welch was killed, said our job is to obtain the names of all CIA people we can anywhere in the world obtain a photograph, send them overseas, and see that they're published in a local newspaper, and be sure you give the name and address of their residence. That's what happened in Greece. Okay, so David Atlee Phillips in this case. Well, he got his facts wrong. Counterspy in 1975 did publish a piece that named Welch as the station chief in Lima, Peru, his posting before Greece, but AG was not the author of that piece. What's more, the assassins likely got the information about Welch from the Greek press in November of 1975, just a month before he was murdered, the Athens News published the names of 10 CIA officers working in Greece, one of whom was Welsh. Bill Colby himself acknowledged after his retirement in an interview in 1977 with the Los Angeles Times that Welch had accepted, quote, bad cover, end quote, meaning he chose to live in the same house as his predecessor, whom these assassins were tracking before he left his post. So it was known that the residence for Welch was the home of the CIA station chief, and he did not bother to move. None of that, by the way, excuses what AG is doing in this period. It really is a threat to the lives of a CIA officer if you unmask them in the public like that. Again, though, this did not stop the CIA and its allies from linking the disclosures of state secrets to the murder of the station chief. And this created a new political reality going into 1976. And you really kind of saw attitudes almost change overnight. So, you know, Frank Church, who, who took on the Ford administration and published his chapter on assassinations over their objections, he ended up supporting legislation known as the Intelligence Identities Protection Act, which, you know, was seen as an important way to make sure that you protect you know, CIA officers overseas. Remember Otis Pike? He was the chairman of the House Committee that was looking into the deep state. After the assassination of Welch, the House votes to keep the Pike Committee's final report in 1976 classified, meaning there would be no 
public document of what it had found. Well, fortunately, the public did end up getting to see the Pike Committee report. CBS reporter Daniel Shore, once again, he had been given a copy of it before the vote. Shore initially asked CBS to publish the thing through one of its book publishers, but the suit said no. So Shore leaked it to the Village Voice, who ran the whole thing. Reflecting the change in the national mood, Shore was fired by CBS after it emerged that he had given that report to the paper. And anyway, it's okay. Shore ended up on his feet. He would end up having a second career with National Public Radio. Okay. The effect of the Welch assassination ended up, though, being temporary. There was no going back to the old ways for the deep state. Congress would continue to demand answers, for example, on the Kennedy assassination. They held hearings in 78 and 79 that were often contentious. Richard Helms has to testify there for hours. Congress also passed a number of reforms in this period. For example, the House and Senate made the Church and Pike Committees permanent. They exist to this day, known as the Permanent Select Committees on Intelligence. Congress passes the Freedom of Information Act, which became a boon for journalists going forward. And I should say the FOIA law was crucial for the research of journalist John Mark's essential book, The Search for the Manchurian Candidate, which was the first comprehensive history of the CIA's various mind control experiments in MKUltra. By the way, there is an MKUltra section I wrote in this original script, and it's going to be part of this future project. So stay tuned for that. There's a lot of material there. Congress also created a new court, secret court, to approve surveillance warrants of U.S. citizens known as the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And finally, in the late 1970s, the Justice Department actually prosecuted senior members of the deep state. Mark felt the FBI deputy director, who was Woodward and Bernstein's deep throat source on Watergate, while well, he was indicted for warrantless surveillance of members of the Weather Underground and their families and friends. He ended up being pardoned by President Reagan, and he was only sent, he was not sentenced to any jail time. He only just pay a small fine. Richard Helms, also the former CIA director, also he ended up pleading no contest to charges that he lied to Congress when he said the agency had no role in operations to destabilize the government in Chile. All right, so what do we make of all this as we are winding down? Well, you know, the Cassandras were wrong. All of these disclosures and reforms, it did not end up destroying the CIA or the FBI. And as I said earlier, I think that probably these disclosures and reforms were necessary given the low point of trust of the American people in the CIA and the FBI in this period. And so you could say, I think, that they helped them survive. Now, there were definitely rough years ahead during Jimmy Carter's presidency. That is for sure. And there were still blunders. The agency completely missed the Iranian revolution in 1979. The FBI and CIA would learn over the years, not until like the late 80s, early 90s, that the Soviets had penetrated their ranks with some of the worst traitors in American history, Alder James and Robert Hansen. So it wasn't all peaches and cream. And yet we survived. Not only did we survive with these amazing disclosures, with respecting the people's right to know what its government does in its shadows, we thrived. The Soviet Union does not exist today, but America is still here. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. 
It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing. 